Are you paying the TTOP with some of your pitchers? We'll talk about that and more with Jason Collette next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 4th. It's show number 31 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Jason Collette from Rotowire, The Process Report, and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast about deadline trades, July horror shows, that TTOP penalty, some thumbs up and thumbs down players, and even more. We'll have player news looking at players who moved at the deadline in the National League with Harold Nichols and in the American League with Jock Thompson. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Rob Gordon, Ryan Bloomfield, and Alex Becky are traveling this week. Not all in a group or anything, just coincidence. So we will have our weekend pitcher matchup segment with Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looking at Jose Barrios, Rich Hill, and other pitchers for the weekend. And in Master Notes, I'll be talking about buying and holding. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We have three new Hall of Famers and... The 3-0. a new member of the 3000 Hit Club. Congratulations, Adrian Beltre. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday edition, our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with the American League and leading off, it's the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. It's always good to be here. An exciting week after the trade deadline. It was a lot of action uh, this time. Sometimes it was a little bit disappointing. We get all excited about what's going to happen at the trade deadline, and then really nothing does. But you can't say that about this season, that's for sure. Uh, starting in uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers acquisition of right-hander Hugh Darvish to shore up their rotation, which has been plagued a little bit with injuries lately. Uh, how does Darvish's arrival change the rotation in Los Angeles? Jock Thompson covered this. Well, you know, this is I, I, this is really huge for uh, for the Dodgers because that, that rotation, as good as it's been, is very injury-prone. You've got Clayton Kershaw on the DL. You've got Brandon McCarthy injured. You've got uh, injury-prone Rich Hill. You've got Alex Wood, who's coming back off of injury, and you don't know how, how long he's going to completely last, even though he's been phenomenal. So a, a, lot of, a lot of questions, especially as that rotation heads to the postseason. And, and so Yu Darvish is a huge uh, gain for the Dodgers. It, it gives him a, it gives him a strong arm down the stretch when, while Kershaw is still on the DL. Uh, and it gives him a one heck of a rotation going into the postseason. Yu Darvish has been no uh, model of durability, shall we say, over the last few years either. So uh, it could be a situation where Los Angeles is just getting a lot of injury-prone pitchers and rolling the dice, hoping that they somehow can scrape through. Uh, mind you, they look like they're a lock for the playoffs. And once you get to the playoffs, you really only need three starters. That's true. And so that they, they will uh, that gives them some real um, backup as they head to the playoffs. And of course, Darvish... Darvish, a projection for Darvish for the rest of the year, 3.38 ERA, 
Um, should do very well moving over to the National League and getting away from the DH situation, and also getting out of getting out of Texas, where uh, the uh, uh, that ballpark certainly doesn't do him any favors. So uh, I think he'll do better in Los Angeles than he was doing in Texas, uh, and the Dodgers can can now mix and match a lot better with their pitchers, depending upon who's healthier, who needs a little rest, and that's a big deal because you've got guys like Hill and McCarthy who are really really aging. So. Um, they can get, get the guy some rest down the stretch as well. Looks like Brock Stewart, who had been getting a little bit of uh, pitching time, is probably going to be the odd man out, especially when all these injured guys start coming back. Yeah, that's likely, that's likely to be what happens. Brock Stewart is going to lose uh, the most playing time, I think, as a result of all of, these, all of these deals. And Jock Thompson also mentioned, and I think this is an important point, being in the National League is a slightly easier road to hoe if you're a, if you're a pitcher because you don't have to face a DH and you do get to face the other guy's pitcher. Very definitely, and so that's going to help. Uh, you know, it's it's one guy out of nine, but that one guy can be very significant, uh, especially if he's coming up with men on base. So, a very definite uh, advantage, I think, for Darvish in that situation. I'd also like to mention that the Dodgers picked up Tony Watson and Tony Singrani, a couple of left-handed relievers which also indirectly might help Darvish and some of those other guys because uh, Los Angeles has built a very formidable matchup bullpen, which means that maybe Darvish and those guys get a little bit fewer uh, innings, a few less batters faced, maybe a little more durability in the long run. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, you know, with, with the kind of bullpen that the Dodgers now have and with uh, uh, Singrani and, and Watson, uh, added to that, they can pull starters after the sixth inning if they've got a good lead or, you know, so that it, it, it will certainly will help down the stretch as well uh, in terms of letting their starters pitch fewer innings uh, going into the uh, into the end of the season. So I think it's a, overall this entire uh, reshaping of the Dodgers staff was wonderfully done. The defending champion uh, Chicago Cubs have been struggling this year, to say the least, but they still appear to think they're in it. They acquired a couple of players from Detroit, uh, starting with left-hander Justin Wilson, who goes to Chicago's bullpen. What role does he play once he joins the Cubs? Tom Kephart on this story. Well, Justin Wilson, is, you know, he was a, a closer in Detroit. He's not going to close or any come, come close to it in, the, uh, in Chicago, but uh, he's certainly got to get a lot of holds in that bullpen. I mean, Justin Wilson is a huge get for the Cubs. It, it adds another strong arm to the back end of the bullpen. And we'll see exactly where they slot him as we, as we get going in for a couple of weeks. But, uh, he is going to have the, a role in the back end of the bullpen, certainly a seventh, eighth inning, uh, that part of the ball game. I thought it was interesting that uh, adding Justin Wilson gives the Cubs three left-handed relievers, which makes uh, Tom Kephart think that the Cubs plan to use left-handers in a more mix-and-match type of setup, which could cut down on Wilson's opportunities. And as you said, definitely he's going to lose pretty much all his saves. He might luck into one here or there. Right, yeah, very definitely. I think that's you know that that's the, going to be the result of all of this is, is Wilson will. Uh, we've reduced his save percentage by, I think, 80%. Uh, as a result of the uh, uh, as a result of the trade, uh, so that that particular stat don't count on Justin Wilson helping you with saves from the, in the National League. But uh, if you count holds, there's certainly a good possibility there, uh, and you should continue putting up a good ERA and a good WHIP. 
And for a reliever, he should be helping out a little bit with strikeouts. His year-to-date 12.3 strikeouts per nine for a dominance rate is pretty good. We're projecting pretty near there, around 11. So uh, especially in the short run, which we have a little less than two months to go, uh, you could get 25, 30 strikeouts out of uh, Justin Wilson. Uh, not too bad. No, that's true. And the, one of the important thing. Wilson is going to be more than just a matchup guy if our projections are right. We're projecting 22 appearances and 21 innings pitch. So the kind of guy who's got to come in and not just face one left-hander, but pitch, pitch through an entire inning. Speaking of relievers, the Mets got rid of Addison Reed, sent him to Boston for some prospects. Uh, obviously, this shakes things up in the Mets bullpen. Phil Hertz covered this for playing time today. What's the story? It does indeed, and as we anticipated, this was something we anticipated as we talked about trades, I think, a week ago. A.J. Ramos now becomes a closer as long as Familia is on the DL, and we have no idea how much longer he's going to be there. He could, in fact, be on the DL for most of the rest of the season. So uh, A.J. Ramos is going to get, uh, we're projecting a 5% uh, gain in saves, but he now becomes a closer uh, for, for the Mets and uh, should do fairly well, actually get more, getting more closers, getting more saves in New York than he did in Miami. Juris Familia, who was the closer for the last couple of years, uh, I, I believe he's supposed to be coming back before the end of the season. What happens when that uh, occurs? Well, at that, at that point, he may become the closer, and we, we may not see as many uh, as many saves out of Ramos at that point. But uh, and there, and he may be at the point of picking up a ball right now. But it's still very iffy as to when he's going to come back. And and so, uh, if I were an AJ Ramos uh, owner, I'd be hanging on very tightly right now because he looks like he's good for at least another month. And whatever saves are available in that uh, Mets situation. Another closer moving, uh, Minnesota trades right-handed pitcher Brandon Kinsler to Washington, getting back some money and, and a prospect. Uh, Phil Hertz on this story. Uh, what role does Brandon Kinsler going to play now that he's in that Washington bullpen, which is pretty strong? Well, you know, Brandon Kinsler, Washington shored up that bullpen uh, earlier with, with trades for uh, – from Oakland for, for Doolittle and Ryan Madsen. And so Kinsler probably slots in as the seventh inning guy. So now they've got uh, that bullpen that has struggled all year, has three very strong arms uh, heading into the uh, into the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings. And so Kinsler is a big help there. But for Kinsler himself, certainly, uh, all of the saves disappear. He's the kind of guy that always worried me anyway uh, as far as getting saves. He was doing the job in Minnesota, but he might have the lowest strikeout rate at, uh, what, less than six per nine innings for dominance uh, in his Minnesota tenure. That's the lowest thing I can remember since the days of Dan Quisenberry. Yeah, I mean, you know, his <laughs> his job rate was so low, and he was very shaky. I, I You know, it was one of those things where you always felt like, well, here's a guy getting the job done and getting the saves, but uh, as shaky as he'd been at that low dom, and we had a projected uh, a, an XERA of 3.93, uh, certainly not a uh, 76 BPV, so not an elite closer by any means. Uh, and while he, he did very well for as long as he was in the role in Minnesota, uh, it's it's almost if you're a Kinsler owner of relief, perhaps to have him out of that role and be able to look for some someone else who may be a more traditional closer. Uh, and he's probably in a, in a better position in terms of his skills in Washington than he certainly was in Minnesota. And, of course, if your league plays holds, it looks like Kinsler will uh, motor right along because if he does get that seventh inning role, as you suggest, uh, Washington's such a good team that there are going to be plenty of holds to be had. Very definitely. He becomes a, uh, a real, uh, uh, could be a real uh, hold source 
uh, going into the uh, the rest of the season. Also a sneaky win source, possibly. He gets a lot of double plays. He gets a 55 or 56% ground ball rate on balls in play. That's pretty high, and it means that uh, if he inherits runners, comes in in the seventh with a couple of guys on, something like that, he could get out of an inning pretty quickly with that double play uh, potential. And then uh, Washington's offense, of course, they can bang with anybody over the last 10 years I can think of. So they can transform a two-run deficit to a two-run lead mighty quick. They can indeed, and that, you're right. He could be a very sneaky win source in that position in the in the ball game as as you head into the late innings if the game is still close. We're projecting only one win. I'll take the over. I think uh, I think Brandon Kinsler could easily luck his way into two or three wins over there in that Washington situation. Such a good team. Uh, Detroit also traded catcher Alex Avila over to the Cubs. Uh, what role is he going to play with the World Champions? Well, you know, Alex Avila was such a, uh, for, for American leaguers, Alex Avila was a wonderful find this year as he was having a having a great season. But uh, now he heads into a situation in uh, Chicago where most of his playing time is going to disappear. He becomes the backup catcher and a very good one uh, at that for the Cubs, but uh, loses a huge amount of playing time as he moves as he moves over. Uh, let's see, we were, we, we had projected a playing time loss of 20%. It could even be more than that uh, as he becomes the clear backup catcher in Chicago. Also, he had been playing really well at the start of the year, surprisingly well. He was he had a really high batting average, and that has really cooled off over the last six or eight weeks, down to where he's now hitting two seventy one. He was over three hundred for quite a while, but uh, if you play in on base leagues, he's got a three ninety three on base percentage. That's also slightly down, but that's really good. He draws a lot of walks. That's really good. But you look at the last at the last month, he's hitting one fifty one with a two seventy on base percentage. Uh, and it's become more like the Alex Avila that we know and love than he uh, was at the early part of the season. So uh, it may, in fact, be he may be maybe beginning to wear down a bit too as the season goes on, and and we might see some uh, perhaps improved production uh, as he doesn't have to play every day. I guess we'll have to wait and see. I I, I think Alex Avila is a, a better hitter than a lot of people realize, especially in the on base department. Uh, I don't think he'll be. Um, a terrific, he's certainly not going to be an offensive producer of the kind that you'd like to have, but as a second catcher, he's pretty good. Yeah, he really is, you know, and he's kind of one of these guys that uh, he, he's hit, He's age 30, so he's hitting that age for a catcher that really, uh, an age when a catcher can actually blossom as they finally figure out, got a chance to concentrate on the offensive side of the ball uh, and less on uh, on playing defense. Well, we're only projecting a 218 batting average, which seems low to me, but a 352 on base percentage. So keep in mind, if you're in the National League and you need a second catcher to replace a bum that you're currently carrying, uh, if it's an on-base league, it could be worth having. And speaking of catchers, uh, Nick, finally, uh, Jonathan Lucroy moves to Colorado from the Texas Rangers. How does this trade affect the disappointing Lucroy's value? Rob Carroll on this story. Well, you know, very, very definitely, uh, you, there's a boost for Luke Ray in moving from from Texas to Colorado. E- even though Texas is a good ballpark, uh, the move to Colorado is going to do going to do several things. Uh, first of all, he gets out of the uh, uh, the heat in Texas. I mean, that is just uh, that's got to wear on a guy playing in that kind of heat every single day. And so now, in a in a more uh, uh, in a cooler atmosphere in Denver. He certainly should uh, should improve a bit offensively. So, and then also the ballpark uh, in Colorado is actually better for hitters than the ballpark in Texas. So that's going to help Lucroy as well. So I think I think Lucroy is a good uh, a good guy to look at. I mean, we're we're producing a we are projecting a playing time gain of seventy percent for Lucroy as he moves over. 
Uh, and he could be a very solid catcher uh, through the rest of the season. Our projections are 288 batting average, four home runs, 21 RBIs. Uh, could be a very solid catcher in the National League. I was also struck, Nick, by these projections because uh, the four homers, uh, 21 RBIs, that's about the same as he has already this year, and it's going to be in only half the at-bats, which means we're expecting that uh, Jonathan Lucroy is pretty much going to double his production, production rates, and that's quite a gain. It really is. I mean, we're looking at if you look at it, we're figuring this guy was a two dollar catcher uh, up to the up to the point of the trade, and we're figuring a seventeen dollar value from here to the end of the season. And so, uh, very sub- something to clearly take a look at if you're in international league uh, only league, especially because uh, uh, league mates may look at what he did in Texas and think, "Oh, this guy's not worth a thing," uh, and because he's having such a bad season. But that that production could really jump in Colorado. You know, this is the second year in a row that Jonathan Lucroy has changed leagues. Uh, so I, I wonder if people are going to be put off uh, as well about the, uh, the fact that when he tra- changed leagues last year, he didn't do that well, certainly not as well as, as people anticipated. Uh, one other thing uh, I'd like to point out about that projection is that, again, his on-base percentage is, going to, is projected to be close to 350, which is quite good, especially for a catcher. And that 288 batting average is up 40 or 45 points from what he's been doing so far this year. Is that all down to park effect? I, you know, I think some of, some of it's park effect, but I think a lot of it has got to be weather effect. I mean, you're, you know, you, you, you look at all of the Texas players at this point in the year, and they're starting to wear down. It's very hot in Texas in, uh, in August. And so getting him into a better atmosphere where perhaps the weather doesn't uh, beat on him as badly makes a difference too. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch these players uh, plying their trades in the National League and new roles over the balance of the season. Uh, if you had your pick of any of them, uh, would it be Darvish? I think it would be Darvish if I had my, if I had my pick, yes, very definitely. All right, Nick, thanks very much. A lot of uh, reading and studying to do for this particular week with all the trades. I do appreciate the effort, and we'll talk to you again next week when things are a little more relaxed. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's look at the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be back as always. And a busy week in the American League as well as the National League. Just finished talking with Nick Nichols about all the moves. Let's go to the American League and all the moves there. Starting in New York, which has acquired right-hander Sonny Gray. Not a big surprise from Oakland. Matt Dodge covered this for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. How is Gray going to be affected by moving from big old uh, Oakland A's stadium, whatever it's called, to Yankee Stadium, which is a little more cozy? Yeah, it's actually a, a kind of a double-edged sword, this move. Uh, he's going to a better team across the board. Offense, uh, bullpen, defense, obviously the defense. Uh, although he must have thought he was back in Oakland on steroids last night against Cleveland. He made his debut for the Yankees, and his defense made three errors on him in the first inning. Uh, the, the real issue for Sonny is the park and uh, the better offenses in the American League East. Uh, obviously, Yankee Stadium has the highest home run inflation in the American League. Oakland, uh, oh. Oco Coliseum, the lowest, uh, lots of foul room there. Um, and uh, AL East parks are a little tougher than the AL West, uh, but Sonny's a good pitcher. His ground ball rate is good. It's a tick up uh, this year. Uh, on balance, he should be fine. Uh, he should probably get you a few more wins on that Yankee team than he did in Oakland. 
The Yankees also brought in Jaime Garcia, who spent a very little time in Minnesota en route. Seems like they're uh, racking up a lot of starters in New York. How are they going to slot them all in? Well, at least in the short term, the last thing I heard was they're going with a six-man uh, rotation. Reportedly, uh, uh, Jordan Montgomery isn't going anywhere. Um, uh, Garcia should be decent in Yankee Stadium. He's a ground baller. He now has uh, Didi Gregorius at shortstop. Uh, he should be fine as a back-end play in deep leagues. A six-man rotation, though, means everybody gets that many fewer starts, which cuts down on their counting stats, wins, and strikeouts. Is there any concern here that we need to revalue any of these players, even Sonny Gray? No, because usually what happens in the next week or two, I mean, how long do six-man rotations ever last? Somebody gets an injury, um, somebody gets sent down, somebody needs a breather. Uh, I'm not not sure it's going to be a big factor. I assume that uh, Sean Manaya moves up to the ace uh, number one starter in Oakland, and he's actually a pretty good starter. I shouldn't scoff, but uh, what happens with the rest of the Oakland rotation now that Sonny Gray is out? Yeah, Manaya is really the headliner here. Uh, they just activated Kendall Graveman uh, uh, on uh, Thursday night. He'd been on the DL with a strained shoulder since I think it was mid-May, about two and a half months. And this was, his, this was his second DL stint with that shoulder. He has some promise, but he got hammered for seven runs by a weak giant offense on Thursday. He was taken out after two innings. That doesn't look good. I wouldn't be surprised to see him go back on the DL. Uh, he supposedly took Gray's, Gray's spot. They got Jarrell Cotton, who's still struggling, Paul Blackburn. This is not a good situation for anyone looking for pitching in the short term. Uh, Oakland pitching staff starters just aren't that good right now. It's just an all-around bad team, Jock, and uh, as you mentioned, Sonny Gray benefits so much by going from bad offense, bad bullpen, to good offense, good bullpen, good defense from from bad, but for anybody in uh, Oakland, the opposite is true. Bad bullpen, bad offense, everything about it is is working against starting pitchers there. Is, uh, other than Maniac, is there any reason to, to roster any of these guys in a mixed league? I wouldn't right now. I mean, Cotton is still struggling. I mean, I like him down the road, and, uh, and uh, Oakland has some very good pitching prospects down in the minors, but they're a ways away. I would stay away from Oakland. Boston acquired right-hander Addison Reed, a bullpen ace from the Mets for some prospects. Matt Dodge on the job for playing time today again. Uh, how does this affect the Boston bullpen? Where does Addison Reed fit in? Well, he becomes uh, Craig Kimbrell's setup guy automatically, and he gives them some much-needed reliability in that eighth inning. And he could get some save opportunities if Kimbrell's overworked or needs to be shelved for a little bit. Uh, I do worry, again, about the division change in the ballpark. He's coming from... Uh, uh, that that City Corp field over in or City Field over in New York, uh, which is pretty decent pitchers park, uh, and this is a guy who doesn't throw a lot of ground balls, so he could be hurt a little bit by Fenway. But Reed's Reed's a pretty reliable uh, eighth inning guy. He has closing experience as well, which is something that a lot of managers take into account when they're making these kinds of decisions. Boston's also getting Joe Kelly back. Uh, all of a sudden, that Boston bullpen looks like a, a real strength for the team. Yeah, if these guys come back healthy, I mean, Boston really needs this because uh, they've, they've got a lot of issues that are just coming up over there. I imagine that we're looking at guys like Heath Henry and Matt Barnes and Robbie Scott looking at losing some playing time, but Reed will pick some up, Kelly will pick some up. I think this is good news for the, for the Red Sox. Also could be news for owners of those guys. Would you roster uh, uh, Joe Kelly, for instance, now that he's coming back? Um, I might. Um, I mean, I, I don't see him getting a chance to get into the eighth or ninth inning. It really depends on uh, on what you need and what kind of a, a deep league you, you're in. If you, if you need strikeouts, sure. I mean, you can consider Joe Kelly. 
Toronto traded a couple of pitchers, starting with uh, left-handed starter Francisco Liriano, who was having a pretty tough year in Toronto. He goes to Houston, and uh, Toronto gets back a couple of outfielders, uh, veteran Norichika Aoki, but also the prospect Teoscar Hernandez. This is a pretty interesting trade. First of all, what happens to Liriano in Houston? Well, he's going to be a reliever for now. Um, Will Harris and Tony Sipp had been the relievers most of the year for Houston. They're both on the DL, and and Harris may be there for a while. He uh, had shoulder inflammation, came off the DL about three weeks after that, and went right back on again with the same injury before even throwing a pitch. So I'm not sure when we're going to see him again. Um, And uh, the the Houston bullpen is in shambles right now. they got a lot of guys on the DL or pitching badly, so they're going to need Liriano as a lefty coming out of the out of the pen uh, he could start obviously he's been a starter most of his career so if, if that equation changes and the, and it's the rotation that needs help he could go right back there but right now he's gonna he's gonna be a reliever he's he's on a better team obviously and pitching in a better park in Toronto so this could help his numbers uh, Lance McCullers uh, went on the DL for Houston maybe that uh, opportunity for Liriano as a starter might come sooner than we think yeah, um, uh, Houston's uh, Houston's hurting right now. It's going to be interesting to see how they weather August. And what they do with their pitching staff. Uh, meanwhile, what happens to Nori Aoki in what is already an overloaded Toronto outfield? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting situation. He was playing about 50% of the time, uh, almost every night against right-handers. He was in uh, in left field. He's kind of an empty batting average kind of guy and not very good at, def- at defense. Um we have him now at 15% in Toronto, and where I think that might be a, a touch low, um, he, he's going to be fighting Steve Pierce and Ezekiel Carrera for playing time. And then you're looking at Anthony Alford and Teoscar Hernandez maybe later in the year. I think he, Hernandez might be up in late August, certainly September when Roskers expand. I don't see how Aoki wins with this deal. I, I think his playing time gets hurt. I do too, especially Steve Pierce, of course, had two Grand Slam walk-offs in the space of four games just a, a little while ago. Uh, Ezekiel Carrera is actually playing quite well. He's batting close to 300. He's playing uh, subpar defense, but not as subpar as in the past. I can see Nori Aoki just not having any kind of spot at all. They may just cut him. Yeah, um, I, it's an interesting deal because obviously Toronto wanted Teoscar Hernandez. It wasn't Aoki. I wouldn't be surprised that the Blue Jays are the team that eventually cuts Aoki. Yeah, when I looked at it too, I thought obviously what Toronto wanted was the prospect, and Teoscar Hernandez is a pretty decent prospect. I wonder if Houston said, okay, you can have him, but you got to take Aoki off our hands. Yeah, something like that. I'm not sure what the cash switch was, if there was any, between Liriano and Aoki. Obviously, Teoscar didn't cost uh, anything cash-wise, uh, being a, a minor leaguer, but uh, um, yeah, it was kind of an interesting deal. I didn't see any cash changing hands, but sometimes those things don't make it onto the uh, transaction sheet. Uh, Toronto also traded uh, right-handed reliever Joe Smith back to Cleveland, where he's from, getting back some prospects there. Tom Kephart on the story. What are the effects on the Cleveland bullpen? Well, um, now that Andrew Miller's been put on the DL, I, I actually think Joe Smith, who's had who's had a pretty good year, is well, you know that his numbers out of Toronto are are, are terrific. Uh, um, he has an outside chance to close. Cody Allen hasn't been good, and and he's pitched a little better than uh, than Brian Shaw. Um, if uh, if you're looking for uh, for holds and maybe a, a chance to close, I would be interested in in Joe Smith. He's also on a better team now. 
And, of course, Smith has some uh, experience in the closer role. I believe he closed for the Angels for a short while. And, again, managers like guys who've been there before, and uh, Brian Shaw has not. I think he's pretty much as good as Joe Smith, but uh, the little bit of experience that uh, Joe Smith has might tip the balance in his favor should any closing uh, opportunities arise. I I think they're going to double down on Cody Allen personally and uh, just hope that he manages to get back to form. Uh, In Toronto... They're going to be short uh, reliever. Joe Smith was playing a pretty critical role for the Blue Jays. Do you have any thoughts on what happens in the Blue Jay bullpen? Yeah, I sure don't. I think you you would probably have more thoughts than I would. I mean, I look down this this bullpen list. I see Ryan Tapera. Uh, I don't know uh, Joe Biagini. Is he pitching any better since he since he left the starting role? That's a pretty grim bullpen behind uh, Roberto Orsuna. It is, and Osuna's been blowing leads, but usually only when my uh, Toronto starters are going. Uh, Estrada <laughs> and Jay Happ have both had Osuna blow leads, but uh, Osuna's a quality reliever. We know that. I think uh, there's all kinds of guys that are battling around in that Toronto bullpen looking for roles. Biagini, you mentioned. Uh, Ryan Tapera, uh, you mentioned. Aaron Loop might start moving back up a little bit, but basically, when you look at them all, there's not a lot there to get excited about, I don't think. Uh, I don't see any closers in waiting that's for sure and heaven help them if uh, Osuna gets hurt that's all I can say about that Uh, the White Sox traded outfielder Melky Cabrera a former Toronto Blue Jay and a former Kansas City Royal back to Kansas City Matt Dodge has been a busy guy covering this story as well for playing time today what is Melky's role likely to be for the Royals well, he's going to play, and he and he and he has played since he's gone over there. Um, he he can hit, if not for power, certainly for batting average, which Kansas City uh, needs. Uh, their entire outfield, other than Lorenzo Cain, has been uh, been pretty pretty mediocre this year. Uh, uh, actually, and it's kind of funny. Lorenzo Cain actually got a breather the other night, Wednesday, as Alex Gordon started in center field, uh, and Melky played left. Uh, the primary candidate for bench time to me looks like most of the time D.H. Brandon Moss, who who's, uh, it's funny, as I speak, his bat came alive just a little bit last night. He hit a couple of homers. Maybe this will incentivize him a little bit. But uh, he's been pretty bad all year. He spurted a little bit in July, uh, still hitting around 200, uh, lots of strikeouts. Uh, Alex Gordon is another one. He's uh, I know he's an institution in Kansas City, but he's hit 202 for the year. He's only hitting 230 in July. If Kansas City is is bringing Melky over to help them with a spurt, uh, these are bats that have to sit uh, if if they're if they're not hitting. Uh, rookie uh, Jorge Bonifacio, maybe a little bit of um, of downtime for him too. On the other hand, he's been hitting better than uh, the other two guys, Moss and uh, Gordon. So it's going to be interesting. Uh, but Melky's going to play. I think he is too, and I wouldn't be surprised to see Brandon Moss basically sit entirely. They could rotate these uh, four outfielders, Cabrera, Gordon, Kane, and Jorge Bonifacio through some kind of DH kind of deal. Uh, But I think there's going to be a pretty even split of playing time, except that Kane will be pretty much full-time for sure. Yeah, I agree. Uh, They they can't keep Kane's glove out of center field and uh, and his bat out of the lineup for too long. Uh, what happened the other night was just uh, just some time off. Uh, it's funny how managers do that. Uh, just to it, it, when, a, when a player comes to a team, the obvious player who's going to sit eventually doesn't sit immediately. It's kind of a, a show of faith in the, that the manager has a, a vote of confidence, so to speak, in keeping him in the lineup for a game or two before he starts sitting. And I think that's what's happened to Brandon Moss. And don't forget, uh, you mentioned Lorenzo Kane. They can't do without his glove in center field. Alex Gordon is still a very plus-plus defender in left. 
And uh, you can say a lot of things about Melky Cabrera, but uh, an outstanding defensive outfielder he is not. And maybe that'll weigh in on their decisions. They do take defense pretty seriously in Kansas City. Uh, in the same division, Minnesota still has fading aspirations for the playoffs. They traded their closer, right-hander Brandon Kinsler. So uh, what's left in that Minnesota bullpen doesn't look too impressive, Jock. No, I know. I'm looking down this bullpen, too, and I'm seeing Taylor Rogers, Matt Belisle, uh, uh, Tyler Duffy, a guy named Hildenberger, who I know nothing about. All of these guys look mediocre. Uh, they don't have a lot of closing experience. Uh, uh, all with save projections now at Baseball HQ. This one's like the, the Chicago White Sox pen. I would stay away from it. Hildenberger is uh, uh, a guy who's down in the minors. He's been mentioned in a few places online. I've seen him as a very dark horse, maybe the kind of guy, if your league rules allow it, you can bid a buck or, or zero if your league rules allow it and just stash him away on reserve on the outside chance because if all you're behind is uh, Taylor Rogers, Matt Belisle, um, Tyler Duffy actually is, has not been that terrible this year, but you can see the Twins saying, none of these guys is our closer of the future for sure. Maybe we should take a look at Trevor Hildenberger. You could do worse if it doesn't cost you anything. No, I agree, and for that reason alone, it, it'd be worth. It would behoove me and everyone else to find out who Trevor Hildenberger is, because the other guys, we know who they are. They're not very good. Texas traded uh, right-hander Hugh Darvish to to Los Angeles, getting back some prospects. The immediate problem for Texas, although they're going nowhere this year, but they've got to put somebody out there to take Darvish's innings. Who's it going to be? Yeah, it uh, it looks like it's going to be uh, Nick Martinez. Uh, obviously, uh, we know that uh, that Texas is playing out the string right now. Uh, Martinez is your your simply your classic four uh, uh, A pitcher. Uh, he, he he pitched fairly well in Triple A. Uh, has had a couple of decent starts in Texas, but uh, you know you're talking about a guy who uh, uh, ERA of around um, three point. 3.6 in the minors and about 4.4 in the majors. Uh, back end guy uh, in the in the warm months in Texas, I would avoid most pitching there. I'm even avoiding uh, Cole Hamels because he's been kind of up and down lately. I just, I, I just it, it, this is another team that I just don't see chasing starters on. Yeah, Nick Martinez uh, so far this year has been pretty unimpressive he started the year okay with a pqs4 start at kansas city uh, in texas against kansas city and after that it's been uh, mostly zeros and ones pqs zeros and ones we call them pqs disasters and for good reason they're really bad starts and he has uh seven or eight of them over the last nine or ten starts he hasn't been good at all uh, this is a situation where even if you're literally rostering a DL guy at this point in an uh, AL only situation you still really can't roster Nick Martinez I don't think yeah there's just not a lot of good pitching uh, available anywhere to be had again this year and uh, the Rangers don't have a lot of guys who are MLB ready I mean they, they could bring up some of their some of their prospects from double A uh, and triple A come September but uh, this is not a real good situation in Texas and uh and given that they traded uh, you Darvish, it gives you an idea of where they're heading. One of the most talked about likely trades uh, coming up to the deadline was left-hander Justin Wilson of Detroit being traded somewhere. Indeed, he was. He went to Chicago. The Cubs, uh, Tom Kephart on this story. Who takes over in Detroit in Wilson's closer role? Well, right now it's Shane Green, and he's actually done pretty well in the short term. He's saved uh, three games. Uh, he's not bad. Uh, he's. He, I would certainly chase Shane Green over anyone in Minnesota or uh, or Chicago. 
Um, they've also brought in uh, Edward Mujica, who also has a closer background. Now, he's a little bit, little bit long in the tooth and hasn't pitched well in the majors for a couple of years. Um, he could back him up. Uh, there's always Bruce Rondone, who occasionally looks like he's showing flashes before he goes out and gets blown apart or does something dumb. Um, I, Shane Green is the guy, uh, followed up by Mujica and Rondone. And they also traded, uh, the Tigers traded Alex Avila, a catcher who started off having a really good year, settled down somewhat more recently. So who's going to be the backup catcher in Detroit? Yeah, if you're in a deep league, uh, John Hicks is kind of an interesting name because uh, he can also play first base in DH, and he can hit a little bit. He hit very well uh, replacing uh, Miguel Cabrera when, when Cabrera went on the DL for that short period of time. Not a, not a world beater. He's never going to be an all-star, but if you're looking for someone, if you're looking for lightning in a bottle at your second catching spot down the stretch in a deep league, uh, Hicks is an interesting name. We have one more big name to get to, but I'm curious what you thought about the trade of right-hander Jeremy Hellickson from Philadelphia to Baltimore. Uh, Hellickson's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. That's why Philly wanted to get rid of him and get something. I think they just got um, prospects. But why in the world did Baltimore want Jeremy Hellickson coming in? Unless they, I don't understand it. I'm I'm not even going to hazard a guess. It's just mystifies me. Well, I, you know, I, I get it for the standpoint of, of their pitching staff is their starters are really bad. I'm looking down the list of their ERAs and expected ERAs here and, and some of their other numbers, and it's a, it's a pretty terrible staff. On the other hand, uh, Hellickson has a home run problem, and that's not gonna it, it, that's not gonna go away in Camden Yard. And like you said, he's a free agent. There's two months to go. How much how much chance does does Baltimore have to jump back into this uh, to this race? Uh, I I just don't see it. Uh, it seemed to me a, a strange trade trade, almost uh, rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic, so to speak. Yeah, when I looked at it, the the only thing I could come up with was they needed a warm body to send out there every fifth day in Baltimore to run out the string on this season. And maybe the fact that he's a free agent at the end of the year, they saw as a plus. They don't have to carry him through 2018. They owe him no money beyond what goes on to the end of the year. And they got some cash from Philadelphia in the deal, maybe to pay most of the salary or part of it anyway. Uh, Do you think maybe the fact that he's a free agent, Baltimore saw as an advantage in this deal? Yeah, maybe. And and maybe. I mean, they're going to need pitching next year, too. Maybe. Who knows? Hellickson does does really well, surprisingly, in two months and decides to come back to Baltimore for a, for a decent uh, deal. I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting situation. I just don't see him having a lot of success in Baltimore. The last big name at the trade, trade deadline in the American League is a guy who was the big name in the trade deadline last year. Jonathan Lucroy came to Texas last year at the deadline. This year he leaves Texas, goes to Colorado. Uh, get, they get prospects in return. Who catches for Texas now that Jonathan Lucroy is gone? Well, the winner there is Robinson Chirinos. And, and this was a move we actually projected uh, in early June in our uh, AL, in my AL West uh, playing time tomorrow space. Uh, Chernos had, had has big time power and he was really just hitting home runs all over the place in June. He's he's died off a little bit in July. He's he's struggled batting average wise, five for thirty eight. But uh, if he stays healthy, I mean the power's there. He's gonna hit you some home runs and particularly in, in Texas. So uh, another interesting guy if you're in a deep league and you need power from your catching spot. 
Well, any kind of production in a deep league, uh, AL only, is welcome from any spot, but particularly from catcher. And, Jock, before I let you go, something that happened outside the realm of trades. Uh, sad news for the Tigers. Detroit right-hander Michael Fulmer has been sent to the DL. Dreaded words, elbow injury. Uh, we won't speculate on what the injury might be until we hear some more actual news, but in the meantime, it creates a gaping hole in that Detroit rotation. Who steps in? Yeah, it, it looks like they're going to give Buck Farmer another chance. He's had them before. Uh, he's an okay pitcher, but he's got a big home run problem. Uh, he, he's not somebody, again, that you want to rush out and grab. Uh, back of the rotation guy at best. Uh, still hasn't shown any sustained success in the in the, the majors. Yeah, and it's surprising how bad his home run problem is, given that Detroit is not really a homerific type of park. And yet, there he is. He's he's had, uh, I think, four starts this year for Detroit. Uh, actually, the first two were pretty good. Then the last two were terrible. His first two were actually PQS 5s. The last two were PQS 1 and 0. I don't know what to think of Buck Farmer, but uh, I guess if you're desperate, you could take a crack. But uh, ordinarily, I don't think I'd risk it. Yeah, that, that big home run problem in uh, Comerica Park is a big red flag. <laughs> okay, Jock, thanks very much for helping us out. We'll get back with you again next week as the American League heads towards the stretch. Okay, PD, talk to you then. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, a columnist at the site, and he covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. When we come back, our feature expert interview, Jason Collette from Rotowire, the Sleeper and the Bust podcast, and the blog, The Process Report, coming up next here at Baseball HQ Radio. I want to thank the sports writers. You know, I've been asked that question for the past 10 years. What is the reason why you hadn't got in? Thank God I don't have to answer that question anymore. As you know, I'm not looking at these notes because I had to change them around a little bit because, you know, we are at the end of the day. I'm surely not used to batting fifth. Although I, I feel like I had the power and speed to do it. Indeed, he did have power and speed. Tim Raines at Cooperstown on Sunday, joining the Hall of Fame. Welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our feature expert interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined by Jason Collette from Rotowire, The Process Report, and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Jason, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, thanks for having me. How you doing? I'm doing uh, real well, and uh, how are you, and how are your Experts League's teams doing? Uh, let's see, labor, uh, mixed labor, the team I run with, Paul Spore, not doing so well. A uh, lot of injuries. If you name a good player that's been injured, we have him on that roster. Um, so ninth place, I believe. Uh, but in Tout Wars, I'm uh, second. I, I was first for a good chunk of the season. Mike Pothorzer and I have really been trading that back and forth. Uh, I, uh, when, the, when he was without Mike Trout, I was able to sit in first for a little bit, but with Trout back, I've, uh, he's taken that lead back. And then Seth Trackman, last year's defending champion AL Tout, uh, is right on my heels as his team's gotten hot. Uh, you know, it's funny because Mike and I had the same strategy. We both spent about 200 bucks on, on hitting and on pitching. We went a little different. He loaded up on relievers. I went a little more on starting pitching. And uh, he had the better strategy because I have the worst whip in the league, uh, despite having the third best ERA in the league. Uh, it's a little frustrating to try to crawl out of that whip hole. Uh, it doesn't matter. Every time I try to do something, uh, it goes wrong. And, and this week alone, uh, I think my team ERA is something around nine and a half, and my whip is just over two. Uh, so I, I'm trying to win the league, but my pitching is not doing me any favors at the moment. 
We should mention that Mike Podhorzer uh, was the guy who grabbed Aaron Judge in addition to Mike Trout, so he's got an absolute runaway lead in the on-base percentage category, which is uh, something that always takes a bit of figuring if you're used to that batting average category. But between those two guys, I think he could have drafted just about anybody after that and still had a pretty comfortable situation in on-base. Uh, have you noticed in playing this on-base percentage league that uh, it's possible or c- at least planable to say to yourself, I'm going to get two or three really high on-base guys and they can offset almost anything down below in a way that batting average guys can't because there's not that big a spread between top and bottom in batting average? Yeah, that's really what I try to do uh, going into it. You know, one of the guys that I have on every roster uh, this year was uh, Elvis Andrus, a guy that, and, and the funny thing is he's having his worst OBP here this year, but historically he's been a good OBP guy. He was a 380 OBP guy in the second half last year. So I figured, you know, floor, maybe he's a 330-335 guy, and he's coming a little below that. Um, but yeah, I do look to try to get some of those guys that I know that can do that to offset. You know, Corey Dickerson was another guy I was targeting in drafts, and he's never been an OBP guy. Um, but he's doing better than expected this year, so it kind of balances itself out in the end. Um, but when you can get when you can spend fifty dollars and get Mike Trout and Aaron Judge because uh, you spent forty seven on Trout and three on Judge because Judge's role um, when we were doing our auction in New York City the third weekend of March was very undefined and that's one of the benefits you can get when you draft early uh, if you can score a three dollar guy that everybody is uh, let's face it nobody was projecting him doing anywhere near this this year uh, and he's gone out and done it now he's been rather cool of late but. Yeah, that's not that you can't ignore what he did April, May, and June. You also spent really heavily on Jose Altuve. He might have been the second highest bidded guy at $45 at the draft, and he certainly has paid off for you with a season that actually may turn a profit on $45. He's been a monster. One of the things I looked at last year, uh, you know, I, I wanted him last year, and I had a budgeted. uh, up to $38 for him, and he went 43. Uh, And he was one of the first guys thrown out in the draft. And, uh, you know, we've all talked about being being a little flexible with your draft budget, but is anybody willing to spend $6 over on one of the first guys out of the gate? And I think he was the second player last year. So this year, as I put my uh, team together, I'm looking at it as like, okay, he turned a profit on $43 last year. And you look at the skills, and when I put it all down, I said, I'm spending 45 bucks on him this year. And I think I threw him out at 41 and then went 43 and 45. And I would have, I think the same thing happened with Trout. I probably, I would have said 46 if somebody would have top uh, 47 if somebody had topped my 45 uh, because he was the key to my plan last year when I didn't get him. I adopt, I moved money around. I ended up going to get Delano DeShields uh, Jr. as one of my speed guys, and he flopped out on me. So this year I was like, I, if, if I'm building a plan around this type of player, there isn't another Jose Altuve. So I need to spend to go ahead and go get him. And he's been, uh, I mean, his July was unbelievable. He, had, he closed, the, I believe he closed the entire month with a 500 on base percentage uh, and is just hitting everything in sight. And then, you know, last night watching the game and he strikes out in a 3-2 pitch from Blake Snell at a fastball at his eyes. And then he comes out and hits a home run to the opposite field, almost 400 feet on the very first pitch to the next at bat. It's, it's fun to watch him adapt from at bat to at bat. He's such a good hitter and just maximizes his talents. 
15 home runs, 23 stolen bases so far, and that monstrous 423 on base percentage. Uh, BaseballHQ.com has him as a $45 player so far this year in 5x5 scoring. A lot of RBIs, a ton of runs at 74. When you look at a guy like uh, Jose Altuve, uh, obviously you'd like to have him again next year. This is not a keeper league, so you're going to have to go back and bid on him. Where do you see the bidding heading on a guy like uh, uh, Jose Altuve next year? You know, it probably opens it opens up at forty two dollars, and he probably ends up at forty five to forty seven again. He was he's on thirty eight and forty five. He turned a profit last year. He could turn a profit this year. Uh, you know, Mike Trout every year has gone forty plus dollars in this, uh, and he'll do it again next year. And and I just again, I probably maybe I throw him out at forty five next year and see what happens because that seems to be. What's happened every year in this in AL Tout with Mike Trout? Somebody throws him out of that very high number, and only two people bid. The guy that threw him out and the next person. I think uh, Ron did it the one year he threw him out at forty bucks, and to see if anybody would go any higher. And, and uh, Larry Schechter did, I believe. Um, but certain players, and there's only a, a very small group of players that are worth forty bucks as an opening bid. And Jose Altuve is definitely in that class. The problem, of course, that uh, when people are talking about whether you should go in on such high bids is it's all well and good, but the amount of risk that you're rostering in the in the case of rostering a $45 player is that he gets hurt. And we saw that with Mike Trout this year. And I dare say that if Mike Podhorzer had not had Aaron Judge for $3, that he'd probably not be sitting near as pretty as he is uh, at the top of the league because he would have spent so much on Mike Trout and he's He's because he missed all that time. He's just not going to make the money uh, because of counting stats. His ratio will be fine, I'm sure. The uh, on base percentage is is excellent, but he missed however many games it was, thirty games or something like that. And you can't make that up in the counting stats. No, you can't. And I, I've been rather fortunate uh, offensively this year uh, with my health. The the problem is when you spend sixty dollars on pitching or sixty one, uh, your margins are very slim, and that's part of the problem. You know, it. I know it's kind of funny to lament losing names like this, but this is AL only. I mean, I lost Andrew Triggs. I lost Matt Andrees. I, I've, I've had, I traded for Aaron Sanchez um, when he was on one of his DL stints, and he's managed all of three starts since I traded for him. Uh, so, you know, those are names that, that hurt you, especially the way Triggs was pitching and, and Andrees was pitching. I've had to lose those types. Of, so when I lost those guys, you know, I was – my my ratios were doing my whip was doing better, and then so when they drop out, I've had to replace them with with guys that are riskier, and uh, it's hurt. Uh, and so that's really where if I had had those guys be able to stay in, it would have been real interesting to, uh, here down the stretch. But right now, I'm I'm kind of a long shot to try to take down Potthorzer, and at the same time keep Seth Trackman off my heels. You mentioned that you have a, a pretty uh, excellent whip and a pretty bad ERA, or was it the other way around? But isn't it kind of a, yeah? Isn't it kind of unusual in your experience to have that situation? That usually, if you you do have a good of the one, you generally are pretty good in the other. It's quite odd, it seems to me, in my experience, that you would have such a gulf between the one decimal and the other. Yeah, I mean, but if you think about it, if we if we isolate it down to real baseball, it, like if we're looking at a pitcher, trying to evaluate a pitcher, and we see a guy with a, you know, let's say like a, because the league-wide ERA this year, there's only, I think Potters is the only team in the AL Tout that has a team ERA below four. That's how the uh, the league-wide ERA is around 3.8 this year. So let's say there was a free agent pitcher with a 3.3 ERA, and then we see him and he has a, a 1.4 whip they're like okay 
what's going on. Then we look at his strand rate. Oh, he's stranding a ton of runners. And, and this could go the other way. And so a few weeks ago when I was looking at this, my team, I think I was second in the ERA. And then I look and I had, I'm 10th in whip. And so then I start looking at it like a free agent pitcher. I'm a little worried about this staff because maybe my team's strand rate is like 84%, and that's why my ERA is getting to where it is. Or, yeah, my guys are putting a lot of runners on base, but they're not scoring. Um, this isn't the first time this has happened to me either. I think two years ago it was the same boat where I was the top three ERA and bottom three in, in whip. So um, it's a little frustrating because, you know, this late of the season, there's only so much of that hole you can dig out of. But right now my team seems to be going the other direction. Yeah, and uh, it, it's tough to make up ground sometimes in the category, especially when you're carrying a pitcher like Trevor Bauer. Now I'm looking at him, and he's just not been good this year, and we keep waiting for him to break out. I know I've seen lots of expert commentary saying, you know, for the second half, especially when we were in the break and everybody's picking their guy for the rest of the year, I saw a lot of guys picking Trevor Bauer because he seemed to be turning it around on the skills side, and yet he hasn't really turned it around. Yeah, he's the frustrating part about him is yeah I I, I do spot start him uh, he's not somebody who stays in my lineup every day so I, I I do try to pick my battles with him but of late when I've left him on the bench he's pulled a win now two of those uh, last week he shut down the Angels really well and that hurt not having that but the one before that he got a win but it was one of those typical Trevor Bauer wins where five innings eleven base runners you know four strikeouts but hey he got the win the frustrating thing with him is you know he's pitched. Since since after Memorial Day, he's pitched rather well. I mean, you look at he's got a 368 FIP, so that would be better than the league average. He has eight strikeouts per nine, and but he's only won four of his ten starts because the walks can't go away. He's at four uh, four point two walks per nine, but he's keeping the ball in the yard. That's one thing that was hurting him early in the year. But he's only allowed three home runs over his last ten starts. So. You can see the pieces there. Then he has that game like he did against the Angels the other day. You're like, okay, he can do that. But then just as you get back in, he puts up a big stink bomb. And that's, that's really the frustration of owning Trevor Bauer is you can see the pieces, but it hasn't all come together. And I, I, But then again, I would rather take him than somebody like Blake Snell, who I also have on my roster, who I didn't target, by the way. Just I had him down as a $9 pitcher. Somebody said 5 and I said 6 and I have him. He's 0 for 15 in trying to get a win this year, and I have him on the team because I need strikeouts. But it's, you know, it's one of these things where he's the other guy that I'm usually cycling in and out of the uh, in and out of the lineup. But he has yet to win a game because most of the time he can't even get five innings. He failed again last night against the Astros, 90 pitches for 12 outs, and he was out of the game three batters into the fifth inning. Nothing more frustrating than watching a guy rack up those pitch counts and uh, not get through too many innings. Uh, I have a little metric I keep t- for using in my head when I'm trying to figure out how my pitcher is doing in a given start, and I'm watching on TV, and I want to know how many pitches per out. You know, I'll, if they say he's, you know he's uh, in the in the fourth inning, he's got one out, so that's 10 outs he's amassed. If he's at 60 pitches, I know I'm in trouble because he's just not getting out, He's not getting outs fast enough. I like to see a guy who's getting uh, maybe 4.5, 4.3 pitches per out. I know he's going to probably work his way into seventh inning if he can maintain that ratio. I've got lots of pitch. Don't even start on my pitching. <laughs> it's been it's been pretty brutal uh, all the way through. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast and uh, the process report. And uh, Jason, you have a long track record of involvement with the uh, Tampa Bay Rays and analyzing the team. And in this 
trading deadline period, the team really shored up its bullpen. They brought in Steve Sishek. They brought in Dan Jennings, the left-hander. They brought in Sergio Romo. What is your take on how the Rays are going to use this bullpen, greatly enhanced, for the rest of the season and, then, of course, possibly into the playoffs? Uh, well, my overall take is Kevin Cash does not do a good job of managing bullpens. Uh, I mean, that's the sad reality of it is he uh, tends to wait too long for the starting pitcher uh, to to do that. And last night with, with Snell, same kind of thing. You could see his stuff falling apart, and he waited until he put the first three guys on base until he decided to take them out. So, um, But the thing is, if you're building bullpens these days, there's two ways to go about it. Uh, you, know, you can go about it like the Yankees, who have acquired everybody who throws hard. I mean, you look at that bullpen with Chad Green, Tommy Canley, David Robertson, Batances uh, and Chapman is just here comes the velocity, here comes the 33% strikeout rates, uh, try to hit us. And then you can go the other way where you start playing matchups, and that's where Tampa Bay is going. I mean, you've got a guy like Dan Jennings who's really good against lefties and is really good at generating ground balls and you can use him in that capacity. And then you have C-Sheck, who can be used against righties and lefties and has that uh, that, that closer experience that, that Tampa Bay has lacked outside of Columet. You know, they haven't had uh, that other guy. They've really struggled to get the ball to him in the end, and then he had his own stretch where he was struggling. And then Sergio Romo, you know, he has a role, and, and he's still really good against righties. That slider is still a really good weapon, but he's just god-awful against lefties. He can't get them out, and that's really where uh, the problem comes. You know, last weekend there was a, a situation where Garrett Cooper was coming into the uh, – was his spot in the lineup was up. So Kevin Cash – brings in Sergio Romo and it was an obvious situation where they were where they were going to bring in Chase Headley to pinch hit and and he leaves Romo in there anyhow hangs a change up on the second pitch and it gets hit opposite field for a home run turns that game around and that series where the Rays really needed to try to make up ground on the Yankees they lost three of four uh, and Romo there's a in the series before his first game with the team he brings him in uh Cash brings Romo in to face the heart of the Orioles lineup and there's lefties there and they hit him too and so it's uh, I, I think if Kevin Cash works this out correctly, he has the tools to play the matchup game where he has he has one lefty right now in Dan Jennings. Xavier Cedeno is due back in a few weeks. That will give him another lefty. But then the, the, the bigger issue here in this AL East, because uh, they have a lot of divisional games left, is most of the thunder in this division is right-handed. I mean, you look at Mookie Betts, Josh Donaldson, uh, you can go through Aaron Judge, Gary Sanchez. I mean, most of the guys that are the big threats in this lineup in this division are right-handed. So having these kind of right-handed specialists, the Romo, uh, Tommy Hunter is really good against righties. Doing that type of thing, that's the way to go. Uh, and then once you get to September and these managers can just play the marching game in and out of the dugout and use 10 pitchers a game if they want, uh, you know, that's where things could get interesting. And it uh, looks like it'll be a bit different than what Kansas City was doing in years past, what Cleveland did successfully last year, which is set the game up so that you can get five, six innings out of your starter, then seven, eight, nine are assigned innings. It sounds to me like you're saying that we shouldn't expect that from Tampa, and maybe we should be expecting some pretty long baseball games down the stretch when we're watching the Rays. Oh, yeah, and, and Yankees the same way. I mean, those types of things. I mean, the the Two of the last three nights, the Rays' bullpen have provided five shutout innings. The starters have not been able to go deep, and the bullpen's come in and, and done its thing. And the only defined role is Columbus getting the ball in the end, but everything else is up for grabs. Like last year, yesterday, Boxberger comes in in the fifth inning. Uh, a couple of games ago, he pitched in the eighth inning. So it's 
everything in front of Colome is up in the up in the air, depending on matchups. Uh, and yeah, there's room for improvement. I'll have Kevin Cash can utilize those guys, but that's how I see that bullpen shaking out. As a general rule, when we're looking at these kind of uh, extremely large bullpens, and it's no secret that they've been getting pretty big over the last couple of years and the uh, offensive benches have been shrinking proportionally, uh, how do you think this affects the way we need to think as fantasy owners about balancing our pitching hitting budgets, our, our hitting selections, our pitching selections? That kind of tactical planning at the uh, at the auction, how has it been affected for fantasy purposes by this big shift into adding bullpen arms? I think, honestly, I'd like to see us go to a mandatory tenth pitcher in the single in the single leagues in tout. Uh, because when you look at these rosters, these twenty five man rosters, everybody's going thirteen. 13 hitters and 12 pitchers. Uh, and so a lot of these a lot of these bench guys, we see it uh, as we get to the end of the draft, you're trying to find that bats to draft them. They just aren't there, but we have to fill those 14 hitter spots. Uh, and then and I know we have the swing rules, so you can draft that 10th pitcher, but I would just rather have us all start 10 pitchers uh, to that capacity. But there's a lot of there's a lot of guys because uh, in the past we would try to draft the closer and then possibly the setup guy. But now you don't have to take just the setup guy. You can take that guy who's going to work the middle innings. I mean, you saw me draft Chris Davinsky in that capacity, and some other guys draft some of those those swing men because all of a sudden we know they're they can start pitching two innings, and there's value there if they can come in and pitch two three times a week and strike out three to four guys. All of a sudden they're a starting pitcher, and it can work out well. So I think that that's that that new hybrid reliever role that's growing out is is now something we can roster in a single league format where in the past that was unless they had a path to close we didn't want them when you say we should add the 10th pitcher do you mean at the same time also reduce the hitting requirement for fantasy budgets by maybe going to uh, a single extra infielder instead of requiring middle and corner something like that so instead of 14-9 make it 13-10 for our split yeah, I think I'm to that point because again, some of us you look at you look at some of these utility roles or some of the some of the guys we're having to force a roster. I mean, I'm rostering Drew Roberts Robinson right now in AL Tout because I needed somebody to qual- I needed a bat, and he was one of the five available bats I could fab at the time um, that I needed that spot. So it's like we're really just throwing bodies in there at that point. So I wouldn't mind going to thirteen ten uh, or just turning that swing role into an automatic pitcher role. Instead, instead of letting us use it as a hitter or pitcher, just say it has to be a pitcher. Yeah, you're preaching to the converted brother, I can tell you that. I've been saying this for a couple of years now. You can see the writing on the wall, and especially in only leagues. I don't know that you need to make the adjustment in mixed leagues unless you want to do it for the sake of having everybody kind of playing under the same rostering rules. It doesn't really matter in mixed because of the depth of the pool. But in uh, in only leagues, as you said, when we came out of tout, especially because we also have reserve rounds as well, where whatever you know, living, breathing batters were left after the auction, they get snapped up in the reserve round, and a lot of the uh, potential call-ups get snapped up then too. All of a sudden, you look at the uh, free agent list of hitters immediately after the draft, and you say to yourself, man, I don't even have to lose Mike Trout in this thing. I could lose a $10 hitter, and I'm going to be really uh, in, in tough shape because there's literally nobody here except for three or four second catcher type guys and the reason they didn't get drafted is that they're so awful that they couldn't even get drafted in a in a single league well there was something you know last month 
there were, I had an extra outfielder to try to move, and I'm looking around the league who needs outfielders. So then I go into uh, the OnRoto site, and I said, okay, show me all the free agent outfielders that are available for FAB this weekend. And there was one, Boog Powell. And he had even played in over a week, but he was the only guy that was available if you needed to replace an outfielder in the free agent pool. And that's the, 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 the status of things. But one of the things, I mean, I, you know, changing that swing to a pitcher, I think, is the easiest way. Because some people will say, why not just drop the second catcher? But that, that really impacts a lot of things. Because all of this, if I only have to draft 12 catchers in the AL League, that's, you know, that changes values a lot. But if we just turn that swing role that we have into that 10th pitcher, it doesn't drastically impact everything else. I like I like the strategy of the second catcher. Uh, you know, this year I, I think I came out of the draft with Robinson Chirinos, which has worked out well for me. And I forgot who I had. I had some other. I tried to draft another catcher, and everybody kept going one up on me. So I think I walked out with Omar Narvez, and then I uh, early on replaced him. I made a trade because Glenn and Rick wanted. Uh, Jacoby Jones, and so I got Wilson Ramos off, and when Wilson Ramos was still two months away, so I was just streaming in any catcher I could until Ramos came back, and Ramos, frankly, has hit like a second catcher since he's come back. Uh, that really hasn't worked out too well, um, but the, the second uh, catcher strategy, if people want to spend money on their catchers, by all means, go for it, um, but I, I, I do, it's frustrating to have to roster that second catcher sometimes, but I do think there's an advantage uh, to play the role if somebody wants to go in there and uh, and spend it and, and take advantage of that market and hurt everybody else. I, I like that part of the auction. I do too. I think, uh, you know, I know I understand that fantasy rosters are not supposed to be exact replicas of major league rosters, but I think it makes sense that you should have to have two catchers because if you were actually putting a team together, you'd have to have two catchers in case a guy got hurt during the game. Or And, and in our league, it's the same. Even if you have a guy who's just eligible at catcher, if he doesn't catch, that's good enough. But if you just went to one catcher, I agree with you. I don't think that would be uh, – it wouldn't be true enough to the actual roster situations in Major League Baseball for my liking. Uh, I'm with you. I would, I would go to 13-10 and I'd say, you know, maybe go down to four outfielders and one middle infielder and have a have a utility player or something like that to get the number back down because it's uh, – frankly, it's it makes injuries such an enormous part of determining who does well in the league and who doesn't that it kind of removes a bit of the acumen aspect of it. You, you, you put together a really good uh, roster coming out of the draft, as you did, and then all of a sudden, bang, there's a the guy hurt. Bang, there's another guy hurt. And once you get to even two guys hurt, you know you're not going to be able to replace them if they're hitters. If they're pitchers, there's lots to choose from. I mean, you can always get a decent middle reliever type guy to tide you over. But if it's a hitter, you're really, you're really in trouble if anybody gets hurt the way these rosters are now being set up at the major league level. Right, and that was me last year. I mean, I loved my team coming out of the draft. I know we all say we do, but I loved my team coming out of last year's draft. And I finished 11th because I could not stay healthy. I lost a, a number of guys went down. And I mentioned earlier with, with Paul and I in labor, you know, we have Trey Turner. Obviously, that hasn't gone well. Josh Donaldson has been hurt. Uh, we, we drafted David Price before. The, I mean, you draft, we, we draft mixed labor. It's the middle of February, right? Uh, so when we're able to get David Price in late in the third round, we think we have a good pick. So like three of our first four picks have underperformed because of injury concerns. And it's just you can't come out. And that's in a 15-team mixed league, and we've been struggling. And then I mean, there's like four or five other guys we've had that have been hurt as well. So, uh, and, and it just, it's magnified in the single-league format, and that's why uh, 
if you look at the free agent pool, there's always plenty of pitchers to pick up. Um, I've been able to find somebody every week to pick up and string in uh, and do that kind of thing, whereas in the hitter side, like I said, you're stuck with the Drew Robinsons of the world. Getting back to the to the uh, Tampa Rays at the trading deadline, the biggest single move they they made was to acquire Lucas Duda from the Mets to give them some left side pop. Uh, how is his fantasy value affected by the move to Tampa? Do you think? Um, well, I think coming to the AL East will be nice for him because you know he gets to play some games in Yankee Stadium. We saw that immediately over the weekend when he hit the two home runs there. He's going to have uh, you know some time at Fenway. He's going to have some time at Rogers Center, time in Baltimore, and, and Tropicana Field plays well plays well for lefty powers we've seen for uh, Corey Dickerson and, and Logan Morrison this year. So uh, he's going to get a lot of time at DH. He should be the full-time DH and uh, against righties. We'll see what happens against lefties. But uh, it, that works out well. And then from a real baseball perspective, they kept him away from the Yankees, who was somebody that uh, you know, the Yankees really could use. You look at their offense, it's sputtering. I mentioned that um, Judge has really uh, been sputtering since uh, July 1st. People can say, oh, it's the home run derby. Now, you could see signs before that. I mean, he's striking out a bunch. If you watch the watches at bats, um, what's really been standing out of late is how he's pulling his head off the ball uh, and pitchers are just keeping him away, away, and away and throwing them sliders and cutters out there. And as long as they don't miss, they're able to execute uh, and, and get him out. Uh, but I think you know, putting Duda in this lineup allows uh, allows Tampa Bay to keep generating the runs because one of the things where – Morrison's had this great year. Dickerson's had this great year, but Dickerson's really cooled off of late, uh, and and Morrison's had uh, a foot issue that's that's kept him in and out of the lineup a little bit. And so when those guys are both cool at the same time, it stalls the offense out a bit. So having a, having a little bit more pop in that middle of that lineup um, is going to help them. So I think I really like the acquisition from a real baseball perspective, and I don't think it it probably enhances his fantasy value a little bit moving forward. Sometimes the uh, the thing we need to look at in in player is go moving around in trades is uh, who goes out of Tampa. And I was wondering what you thought about the players Tampa gave up, whether any of them and who they would be that the that the Rays might miss if not this year, then down the road. Uh, honestly, the one they're going to miss is Tim Beckham. Uh, I I don't understand. Oh, I kind of do. Why why they moved him? I mean, when you look at a couple of things with Beckham, I I think. I mean, I, I love Beckham for fantasy purpose moving forward. I think going to Baltimore is going to be a fantastic fit for him. We've already seen the immediate returns. I mean, he's been there this weekend, and I, I tweeted out last night jokingly that he's 16 for his first 13 um, as a Baltimore Oriole. But it, he's had three multi-hit games in a row, um, doubles, triples, homers, stole a base. Uh, I mean, he's doing everything uh, offensively. And so he and he was showing signs of turning it around this year. I mean, you look at the numbers. He was somebody I do have him on my roster this year, and he was not a target at all. He came down. He was the last middle infielder that I had projected to get more than 200 plate appearances. And so I have him for one dollar on my team. Uh, and those are the kinds of breaks you have to, that you have to get. Uh, and, and along with health, is finding these cheap guys that that uh, produce. Now he's not doing nearly as much as the $3 Aaron Judge, but that $1 Tim Beckham at shortstop is working out quite nicely for me. Um, but from the Rays' perspective, I don't get it. I mean, if they're going to call up Willie Adamas next year and they think he can stick a shortstop, and some people think he may just have to go over to second base, um, but it's also very un-Tampa Bay-like to call a rookie up to start the season. They always stall their clock, 
find some BS excuse to keep them down until the Super 2 deadline, and then here they come. Uh, and Adamas has been in AAA all year long this year. Um, so if, if that's the plan, if they're going to call them up for day one next year, um, okay. If they, honestly, they should call them up now. Why not bringing up, bring them up now? It's a little frustrating when you hear ownership say, you know, we, we see we're in a good position this year. We're going to extend ourselves a little bit. And then they call up Austin Pruitt and Taylor Featherston instead of Willie Adamas and Brent Honeywell uh, for those things. But the Tim Beckham move is going to hurt because you look at next year, they've got Echeverria, uh, who right now is a $4.3 million player going into arbitration, so maybe he makes six next year. Uh, that's a rather expensive salary if you're looking at him as a placeholder for Adamas for two months. Uh, if not, then Adamas comes over at second base, and then maybe Brad Miller is on the move this offseason. But Beckham was 27 um, under three more years of uh, team control, the bat was starting to come alive. And um, while, yes, he has his defensive struggles, um, yes, his, um, I, I don't know, but he seems to uh, incredibly attention deficit in the field. There are times when he does things, you're like, what were you thinking? Um, his baseball um, acumen sometimes in the field is to be questioned. Um, and he's had some base running gaps. Last year he had a couple of them in the same week that led to him being demoted for good uh, last year. And he had uh, one last week in New York. He did not have a good weekend in New York. I mean, he had the 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 ball, the ground ball that went in between he and Echeverria where he made a move towards the ball and Echeverria thought Beckham was going to get it. And that would have been the game-winning ground ball. Instead, it extended the game uh, into the extra innings. Uh, then he tried to tag up on a fly ball to center field from first base and got thrown out. I mean, there's a couple things like that. So when he was traded, you know, like, wow, that's uh, maybe they're blaming him for the bad weekend in New York. But the rest of the, the rest of the guys uh, in that trade, I mean, Drew Smith went to uh, uh, was the reliever that went to. Uh, where did he go? He went to New York. He was a Lucas Duda guy. I mean, he his ceiling is like a setup guy. I mean, he throws in the mid to upper 90s, and it, that's the guy they got for Mikey Maddox. So turning Mikey Maddox into Lucas Duda is a great trade tree. Um, but other than that, uh, and Casey Gillespie was one of the other pieces. Uh, he kind of plateaued a little bit in the farm. So I don't think they're going to miss much of it, uh, what they gave up out of their system, out of their farm system. But the Tim Beckham move is one that I'm still scratching my head at. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jason Collette from Rotowire, Sleeper in the Bus podcast, and the Process Report. And uh, Jason, you uh, write for Rotowire a column called Collette Calls, and we were talking about trades. And in a recent column, you talked about the other side of trades, which is the effects on the rosters when players leave rather than just arrive. We always look at Lucas Duda coming and saying, How's this going to shake up Tampa's roster? Where is he going to play? Who loses playing time? But he leaves a team as well as arriving at one. Who are some examples at, of this year's deadline action of how important this roster effect of guys leaving is for owners to consider? I mean, one of the things you have to consider overall is you know it, it opens up playing time for somebody who the team thought was not good enough to begin with. I mean, when you when you move somebody off. I'll look at um, at Detroit. So you move J.D. Martinez, and Detroit's farm system didn't have anybody they can call up. So all of a sudden, you're now taking part-time players who were part-time players for a reason and giving them playing time. And sometimes that's not a good thing. I mean, sometimes these part-time players are succeeding because 
they're only being used in favorable matchups. Let's say they're uh, they're a right they're on the short side of a platoon and they hit lefties really well. And so yeah, maybe they had like a 350 on base percentage, 290 batting average. Okay, now they're going to get full time position. They're going to do great. Well, maybe they struggle against righties, so now we're going to overexpose them, and their numbers are going to come down. But I think in the case of Detroit of late, I mean, that what I just described is usually what, what should have happened with Mikey Maddock, but in, because Mikey Maddock has been terrible against righties for his career and has done good against lefties. But since he stepped in when J.D. Martinez left, Mikey Maddock is performing like an everyday player. I mean, he's not hitting the home runs Martinez is, but he's getting on base, he's scoring runs, He's you know, hitting for average, all those types of things. So right now it's working out for him. But a lot of the times when this extra playing time comes up, uh, it's either for a rookie like uh, Yohan Moncada um, this year uh, or last year when Yohan Moncada came up for the Red Sox, and he was terrible, um, those types of things. So it's not always, okay, other guy out, new guy in. This guy's going to do great because he finally has playing time. A lot of the times these guys can flop out. I think this year, uh, you know, Mikey Maddox is a good example of what, what could happen. But some of the closer situations, you know, with, with David Robertson and Swarzak and Canley all getting dealt out of Chicago, all of a sudden it's like, okay, who's going to close? Well, they're going to give the job to Tyler Clifford. Well, I mean, the White Sox win one game a week, uh, so it's not like he's going to get a lot of opportunity. But right now it's his. And in Minnesota they've already said, we're just going to let somebody – Somebody do it. Uh, Taylor Rogers may do it one day. Matt Belisle may do it another day. So it opens up. Um, it gives some of those guys a little bit of value where previously they had none. And Blake Trinan going over to Oakland, uh, you know, he could. He's already netted a few saves over there, uh, unseating Santiago Castillo, who was not pitching well uh, to begin with. So that's really where the uh, where the spots have been now. But uh, again, you've got to notice that you're giving more playing time to guys who couldn't get it earlier, and it doesn't always work out where it's just swapping names out. You mentioned Taylor Rogers is a, a in Minnesota. There's some people who suggest that uh, Matt Belisle is going to be the guy. There are other farther uh, farther along as well. The closer situations are always interesting, and of course, a lot of us keep waiting for somebody to realize that it really doesn't matter. You don't have to anoint a closer as long as they can pitch decently. Uh, Cleveland seemed to be on that track and then stopped doing it. It's too bad. Uh, also, in your Colette calls column at Rotowire this week, you had a a piece called uh, "July Horror Show," looking at some players who had truly horrendous months in July. One of them that caught my eye was Miguel Cabrera. He's been an anchor of some pretty successful teams for me and a huge disappointment this season for anybody who grabbed him pretty high in the draft, spent some serious money at auction, usually 30 bucks or so, sometimes more. How concerned should fantasy owners be that this horrible month and a horrible season is setting a new lower boundary, a new floor for Cabrera when we start thinking about him for next year? I mean, kind of crazy thing to think about him. He's only one bad game from being below average. If we uh, offensively, if we look at it by weighted runs created plus, where 100 is that league average, he's at 101 right now. So one bad game, and he could be at 99. He's never been below 120 in his entire career. Uh, and I think one of the things is if you if you're the opposing team and you're coming in to face the Tigers. You know, there's two guys you're worried about: Justin Upton and Miguel Cabrera. Right now, everybody else is you can deal with them because the whole team, uh, the team as a whole, is not performing well. But why should I pitch to Miguel Cabrera? And I think right now nobody is. I mean, the, but the other thing that really stands out here over the last 20 to 30 games is the lack of hard contact. When all of us close our eyes and watch a Miguel Cabrera at bat. 
you know, we could hear the sound of the ball coming off his bat, and we could see him taking those pitches the opposite field over the fence that other guys can't do, or just turning on a, on a pitch where it doesn't look like uh, normal hitters would break their bat or roll it over, and he's hitting it into the gap. Um, that hasn't been there for the last month. You look at uh, just in that article I showed the track is 10-game rolling average of hard contact, and it's falling off a cliff like a roller coaster right now. Uh, I think that comes to um, you know showing his age. I mean, he's been in the league since he was 18. He's now turning 35 here very soon. Um, and he's he struggled with health the last couple of years. And for all of his reputation, he's only exceeded 25 home runs once over the past four seasons. And unless he gets on some kind of tear here over the final seven weeks, he's not going to get there. He's at 13 right now. Might not get to 20 at the rate he's going, actually. Uh, you also noted that Jackie Bradley Jr. in Boston is actually pretty much on par with last year overall, but that owners are going to be a little disappointed because he looked like he was really breaking out earlier this year. Uh, and again, when you put in a, a couple of graphs about his performance, his strikeout and walk rates are both going the wrong way. Strikeouts up, walks down. How likely is he to recover if we ask the same question as we did about Miguel? This season a little bit, but what about next season? How do we how do we recalibrate Jackie Bradley Jr. or do we need to? Maybe it's just one of those things. It's something to watch for the rest of the year because, like you said, he was on track early on. You know, April, May, he was doing excellent. You could see you know, the, the quality of bats were nice when you were watching him. Uh, you know, he was accepting his walks. He wasn't uh, expanding a strike zone and you know hitting spreading the ball all over Fenway and other parks. And then, you, again, you look at that graph, and all of a sudden, this, on the season, his walk rate and strikeout rates are identical. But here over the last, in, in July, since late June, here and now into early August, he's striking out like 33 34% of the time and barely walking. And this is a guy with a career strikeout rate of about 21 22%. So when you look at that, you're like, what is happening? Is, is, is he hurt and not and trying to play through it? And we haven't seen that kind of information in the press, that type of thing. But when you're looking at a month of a guy striking out well above his average against like three seasons of him being a better contact hitter than this, I, I'm ha- I have to assume better days are ahead. But it's very alarming to see a guy's strikeout rate jump this much within a season and stay like this because it doesn't take too long – 60 plate appearances to say, okay, we have a problem. That's that's about time that strikeout rate stabilizes um, for a batter, and he's well in that. And we have a problem right now with, with Jackie Bradley Jr. It's also it's honestly worth an article in and of itself just to look at why he's doing this. You know, another guy that I was thinking about while I was reading your article was Kevin Pillar of the Toronto Blue Jays, who started off in uh, in the April. Um, first month of the season uh, maybe a bit of march i don't remember and it wasn't just it was just april and he batted 300 he had a 340 on base percentage something like that and everybody said at last this guy is turning it on and coming around and then uh, all of a sudden kaboom you know the the in june and july he's down around 255 for an on base percentage and it's all babbit related most of it's uh, just luck and and sometimes we have to be aware that within a season a season's a pretty arbitrary length of time anyway but within it a, a month is a particular a really arbitrary time and it's probably within the realm of normal variation to have a guy go from a 340 on base percentage to a 260 on base percentage just given the size of the samples involved indeed and then one of the things to consider about him it is you know you're playing every day you're playing on artificial surface 
and you're playing a very taxing defensive position. He was playing center field at an elite level. I mean, it was fun to watch he and Kiermaier go back and forth with who's going to make the better catch, who's the better. It is like 1A and 1B in terms of defensive abilities. Um, but it is a that, that's the thing that gets overlooked. That, that center field is a very taxing position. And, you know, before... 15 and 16 before then he was just a part-time player and all of a sudden you're playing every day in those conditions it's not surprising to see him taking a step back this year uh, because of that and the same thing was uh was happening with Kiermaier as well so uh i agree because early on Pilar was looking like a monster and then you know the last six seven weeks just he hasn't been there at all this raises for me an interesting question in general when you see a player having a bad month or a bad relatively short period how do you assess whether he's a fact for the bad performance or a fluke who's going to rebound you know a couple of things i mean i'd like to look at ratios one of the best examples i can give of late uh was mike fires i mean there was there was a point five six weeks ago uh like mike fires had given up 16 home runs in 36 innings uh his his home run rate was just astronomical at the point and i remember paul and i were doing a, a one of the weekend podcasts and we were talking about two start pitchers and fires was on there and i said you know what you got to buy in at this point because we've hit the absolute floor in mike fires in, in mike fires production he cannot give up any more home runs in this it's impossible uh he's got two starts this week the matchups are nice let's go ahead and go with him and since then, outside of the, the bad game he had against uh, Philly and that rough start he had against Tampa Bay the other day, my fires was pitched very well because you could see the other pieces were there. Um, the strikeouts were there. He really wasn't walking anybody. He just could not keep the ball in the yard. Um, you know, Getting back to what we were talking about with Trevor Bauer earlier, you see some of the pieces there, um, but it's just the one thing that's holding him back. And that, In his case, it was the walk rate, but he's always walking, guys, so I don't see that turning around. But I like to look at some of those other rates and, and see where things are. Like I said with Bradley Jr., yes, he's striking out a ton right now, but it's tough to ignore the previous 1,400 plate appearances where he was a better hitter contact-wise. So what's going on? Maybe I buy him low and see what he can do the rest of the way, and that's that was one of my things with Fires too. So I like to look at these small sample sizes against the backdrop of, of what they've done over the previous, you know, 800 plate appearances or 150 innings, and, and then as long and then I start doing some research. Are they is any, have they reported any kind of injury? Is the press talking about him being day to day with a, a sore wrist or a sore foot? Those different types of things. And if I don't see the injuries and I like what I see historically against a small sample size backdrop, that's when I start buying players. I also thought it was an interesting approach for you to use in presenting the, the data graphically because uh, sometimes words don't show the, uh, the story as well as pictures, worth a thousand words as the uh, cliche goes. But I've noticed that when I'm trying to figure out whether a guy's for real or not, I like to tr do one of those kind of running 15-day or rolling 15-day averages or rolling 10-game averages or 15-game averages like you were using because it gives you a, a pretty good idea what, what constitutes fairly normal variation for this guy if you can do it over two or three seasons especially or more. You see where the true talent level tends to lie, but you also see what – a band within which this guy bounces around. And then you look for instances where he's going outside the band. And uh, at that point, that's when you start to either worry or get excited, depending if he's outside the band, low or high. So I think that the presentation of data as graphs can really help you see that very quickly in a way that reading about it or just looking at the data in tables does not. 
Right. And I, I, what I like, what I especially like about the graphs is it allows you to look back and see and a guy was in that. So if we go back, if we go back to Miguel Cabrera for a second, you know, we if you look at the graph in that article around the 50 game point, he was having trouble making hard contact, but then he bounced back until we got to about game 75, and then since then he's fallen off a cliff. So if we're trying to predict what may happen next, we should see an upturn because, again, historically his hard contact rate has been up there. And all this, now he's a 30% hard contact guy when for the season he's been right around 45%. So there's an upswing coming, but how much of an upswing are we going to see? So I, I really like... Numbers are one thing, but seeing and going, oh, okay, so he's done this before, but then he bounced back, okay, maybe I'll buy, maybe I won't, uh, those types of things. So I like mixing in the words and the pictures, too. You know, there are, as a former teacher, there are visual learners, and there are people that learn by reading. Uh, I'm a, I like the mixture approach. Yeah, I was uh, a long time ago when I was working in uh, the communications business. I had a uh, a, bo- um, a manager, a supervisor, who said the same thing that uh, you know I didn't like PowerPoint presentations as a vehicle for for conveying knowledge. I still don't. But she said, "Hey, look, some people figure things out by that way, and what you got to do is you got to mix it up. You, some people learn by hearing, some people learn by seeing or reading, some people learn by touching. If there's a way you can figure out to to show people by handling things." They learn it better than if you just tell it to them. And it's certainly a, a, an interesting thing for you as the consumer to figure out what is the best way for you to learn and, and understand things and then seek out opportunities in that regard. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Jason Collette from Rotowire and the Process Report and the Sleeper in the Bust podcast. And uh, Jason, you do write regularly for the Process Report. And for those who aren't familiar, it's a website blog devoted to the Rays. And in it, recently, you wrote about Alex Cobb being left into pitch late in the game, where he incurred what you called the dreaded uh, TTOP penalty. What is that? That's the times through the order penalty. Uh, As a as a Rays fan and an Alex Cobb owner uh, in two fantasy leagues, uh, it drove me nuts when the team left him in. I I I forgot exactly which game. Uh, It was a couple of weeks ago, but he was winning. They left him in, they extended his outing, and then uh, it fell apart, and he did not get the win out of it. And I just get frustrated because uh, TTOP is definitely a real thing. There's been research about it. Tom Tango's done research about it. Uh, A number of folks have written about it. And the funny thing was there was even an article. uh, uh, David Lorella from Fangraphs had interviewed had interviewed Kevin Cash at the winter meetings two, uh, two years ago. And he was like, oh, yeah, we definitely recognize times through the order penalty because one of the criticisms of Kevin Cash in his rookie year was he was yanking pitchers out after 18, after 18 batters faced. And if you own Nate Carnes in 2015, you're very familiar with this. You know, Carnes cruising along, yank out, like, what the heck? And then the bullpen was bad, and so they would blow the game, and Nate Carnes would have this great ERA and five wins because he wasn't staying in the, in the game, and they were yanking him out after 18. But I think uh, I was criticizing Cash earlier for his uh, bullpen management. Um, this was part of it. I, I think he leaves the starting pitchers in too long and leaves them exposed to this type of thing. Um, and it's, it's something we have to pay attention to because it is a real thing. If you think, that, if you think through it logically, a pitcher has a has a number of pitches in their back. The average starting pitcher is going to have three pitches, and sometimes they only use two of those pitches against one hand. So if we fastball, curveball, changeup, um, some pitchers are reticent to use a changeup against same-handed hitters. So you don't see a lot of righty on righty changeups. 
So righty on righty is going to be fastball, breaking ball. Righty on lefty, fastball, changeup. They sometimes they'll just spot the curveball. For the most part, they're two pitch pitchers to each side. So you see it the first time. You see it the second time, but the third time you're seeing that pitcher, you know what his pitches look like, and you know where he tends to use them. It's just a matter of is he going to come in or out this time, and and heaven forbid if that pitcher's left in a fourth time to see that batter, uh, because then you're very comfortable with it. So logically, it just the more looks you're going to get at somebody, the better chance you have, and the numbers play out uh, play out for that. Um, factor and uh, sometimes managers ignore that and that's where you see a lot of these starting pitchers where your guys in there you know throwing five innings two hits one run seven strikeouts and they'll finish the game with six and two-thirds four runs um, eight strikeouts and something that start all fell apart at the back end when I read the article, I was really intrigued by this. I had heard it, and of course, when I read stuff like that, like you, I immediately go to, to a data source and start looking into it. And I, I amassed all the uh, pitchers who have, uh, I think, minimum 15 batters faced uh, on a fourth time through the order. And it's pretty rare, actually. There's only 22 of them, I think, who had 15 or more. And, and uh, the top guy was Michael Fulmer, who had 34, which is not a lot of hitters. And of course, then you run into the sample size issue again. But I was really struck by how many really good pitchers have a really pretty severe time through the order penalty. And I'll give you one example. Clayton Kershaw, 0.749 of a run in expected FIP that fourth time through the order. And other guys are even worse. There's uh, uh, Corey Kluber's almost two full runs higher that fourth time through. Max Scherzer's 2.2. Chris Sale, 2.3. Justin Verlander, 2.4. This is a real thing. And by the way, the worst of all, Alex Cobb, as you might not be surprised to hear. If if we look at it by weighted on base average, Chris Archer is another fine example of this. First time through the order, 247 weighted on base average. Second time, 256. Third time, 386. If he's allowed to face anybody for fourth time, 506. And if you've owned Chris Archer this year, you've seen it where Kevin Cash will leave him in one or two batters too long, and that great start gets derailed. It, ha- you know, it worked out. He, was, he ended up getting the win the other day against the Astros, but that inning almost got away from them because they left him in too long. But there's been a number of times where Archer's been out there just one or two batters too long and allowed to face him. I mean, my whole thing is the only time a pitcher should see a lineup, uh, turn a lineup over for the uh, and get in there the fourth time is if they are pursuing a perfect game or a no hitter. That's it. Outside of that, you know, you could bring in an average middle reliever and they're going to have a better opportunity to get that batter out than that starting pitcher that fourth time through. Uh, and in the day, in this day and age of seven man bullpens. There's no reason to let a guy go through a lineup a fourth time, especially a Cobb. Uh, he's a prime example of that where he is, uh, against righties, he is fastball and curveball and sometimes changeup, but he is really a two-pitch pitcher in that regard. And so you're, it's, it's just very tough for them to do. And the managers who uh, can uh, manage that appropriately, it helps. But, uh, again, I just don't see why these guys do it in the day and age of, an eight, uh, of seven and sometimes eight-man bullpens, why they let these guys – sit in there uh, because the scores is a 4 nothing, and uh, 4 nothing leads are, should be pretty safe in the seventh inning and the next thing you know it's 4-4. Yeah, it happens all the time, and you have to wonder. Also, you'd think that given the amount of money some of these guys are making, these pitchers, especially veteran guys, the we know that injury risk increases with the number of pitches thrown in an outing, especially high leverage pitches, uh, high stress situations, and 
given what we know about that and the fact that the performance plummets so badly as you get later and more and more times through the order, in the interest of winning, in the interest of protecting the health of your pitchers, you'd think that it would be almost automatic, especially as you said, since it's not like you're burning out one of your three relief pitchers on the bench when you've got seven or eight of them hanging around uh, in most rosters these days. Yeah, it definitely. I mean, there, there's also some additional research, and I linked to it in the article, uh, that ground ball pitchers can don't suffer as much of a penalty, uh, the TTOP penalty, as fly ball pitchers. Uh, and so, but even that said, there still was no excuse to leave Cobb into that uh, Cobb into that game. You've got all these extra bullpen guys. Uh, utilize them, especially when they're only pitching. Like sometimes these guys are only facing eight to nine batters in an entire week. Uh, it, it really doesn't make it. The numbers are are alarming on how tough it is for guys for pitchers to get guys out. Uh, and if you look at why some of your starting pitchers have a lot of no decisions, TTOP is a big reason why. Yeah, and of course it, it is angering when you are watching the guy and he gets halfway through that third time around. He looks like he's laboring, and they just won't take him out. You have Marcus Stroman on your tow team, I believe. Uh, I watch a lot of Toronto games because they're a nearby team. My, my wife's a fan. And you watch Stroman go out there, and, and uh, the, of course the guys in the broadcast booth, oh, he's so gritty. Oh, he wants to he wants to pitch all the way to the end. Oh, he's you know 110 pitches, but that's okay because Marcus is a tough little guy. And the fact is, Marcus Stroman in the third and fourth times through is not a good pitcher. And he and the team is seemingly unaware of the fact that they're putting him at injury risk and they're reducing the chances of him winning his starts by doing this, and it's just enough to drive you crazy. Have you noticed, is the TTOP situation worse for certain kinds of pitchers? You mentioned ground ball, fly ball. What about fireballers versus curveball type guys, left-handers, right-handers, anything like that? You know, I haven't paid too close attention to that, but I would have to think it has to suffer against fastballs because a guy, if they're throwing 96 in the first inning, it's, it's unless they're like a Verlander or uh, Kluber's good at maintaining his velocity, but that velocity is going to wane where they're throwing 96 in the first, it's going to be 93 by the seventh, but you said Stroman's a great example of that too. Uh, that's when you, you know, he gave up a home run to Kevin Smith the other day. He's, he was in there rolling along, I had six innings, one run, and next thing I know it's seven innings and three runs because he gives of a two-run home run to Kevin Smith, who was pinch-hitting. Uh, a pinch-hitting catcher hit the two-run home run because Stroman was in there later in that game. So uh, I, I haven't really paid attention to velocity and, and stuff, and I haven't found any research on it, but I don't like especially guys that pitch up their fastball for so long, it just becomes a little easier to hit when you're facing it the, for the 100th pitch instead of pitch 10 in the game. If this thinking were to become commonplace, can't you see us scouting the stats for pitchers who have pretty good times through uh, records? Like, for instance, Clayton Richard of San Diego. I noticed him. He actually gets better the fourth time through. Again, very small sample, only 27 batters faced. But uh, he's down around uh, a 220 expected FIP, which is really good, and it's uh, down a run and a half from his third time through. Irvin Santana of Minnesota this year anyway has also seen some pretty good results late in games in that in that fourth time through situation how do you think we're going to be factoring the penalty into fantasy valuation processes in the future especially as this whole bullpen starter roster balancing keeps keeps evolving i mean to me i want to focus on where guys are that second and third time through that order i mean if we see a giant jump uh in that capacity that may be one of those tiebreaker things if you're looking at two different pitchers and how to evaluate them and you're seeing somebody with that big jump between two and three maybe you 
peg him down a little bit. I mentioned Nate Carnger earlier. This is this was a big problem for Jake Odorizzi earlier in his career where he could not go through a lineup a third time over. He would cruise the first and second, and then there would be this gigantic jump the third time through. He's gotten a little better um, in that regard now, but it, it's not as bad as it was. But that's just something, as, as you look at your evaluations in the offseason, something to consider. Look at those guys, and maybe that's how you break that tiebreaker or knock somebody down a dollar and kick somebody else up a dollar. That fourth time through, on, if a pitcher's still in the game that fourth time through, I mean, they're, already, they're, they're in the zone for that particular game. I mean, their command's on, they're hitting their spots. Uh, maybe it's a, a phenomenal matchup where they're facing the, the B squad of, of, a, of a second division team, that type of thing. Uh, but to me, everybody's got most of these starting pitchers are trying to get through that lineup that third time. So that jump from two to three times to the lineup, that's where I'm going to focus. Yeah, I don't know. Every time I see, uh, other than your Clayton Kershaw, Corey Kluber types, and even they suffer, as I mentioned, with this fourth time through situation. But whenever I see any pitcher, especially a guy who's on my uh, fantasy roster, and they leave him in there for that uh, very late game, he's going to try to get the complete game, I just sit there with my hands over my eyes, peeking out like a, like a kid looking at a horror movie, because I, I'm just waiting for something bad to happen. Because so often something bad does happen, and maybe that's a uh, what do they call it the availability heuristic that whenever we're asked what do you think of this situation you always think of the worst thing that happens because it sticks in your mind but I really think there's something to it and I wish they'd just stop doing it these pitchers uh, even back in the old days when Don Drysdale was throwing 700 pitches a game or whatever it was uh they were definitely the exception and not the rule. And it seems to me that with all the modern data, all the modern analysis, that managers should understand by now that the modern starting pitcher is not going to be a 120-pitch, nine-inning, four-times-through-the-order guy. It just isn't going to happen anymore. And they would be better off for the pitcher's health, as I said, for the team's winning winning percentages, to just say, okay, we're saying seven innings tops, maybe six. Indeed. I mean, I saw something the other day, uh, yesterday. I don't remember the exact numbers, but somebody said of, of the top 45 starting pitchers that were drafted by NFBC, something like 26 of them have been have spent time on the disabled. I'm sorry, it was 15 of the top 48 pitchers uh, have spent time on the disabled list this year, and so that's and maybe. In, you look at it, and maybe that's a sign of, of using them too early in the season. These things catch up. There are a finite number of bullets in your arm, and if you're wasting them in a six nothing game because, oh, you know, he's only had a hundred pitches and we're up six, why, you know, why burn a reliever? Because we also they also balance it. You don't want to burn through your bullpens. There have been there have been situations where. Uh, where managers have just abused the bullpen early on and that bullpen's limping towards the finish line. So you see them trying to balance this type of line. But again, the way to, with the rostering rules, carrying the seventh pitcher, sometimes eighth pitcher, with the 10 man, with the 10 day DL and how teams are frankly abusing it and just finding any reason to put somebody on so they can call a fresh arm up. There's enough ways to cover this, uh, and uh, hopefully things get a little better because um, pitching injuries seem to be really tough this year, and uh, it's it's definitely it feels like it's impacted fantasy baseball this year more than most years. And of course, this makes me think of the the whole question or the 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 whole angle of uh, college coaches and high school coaches who just want to win games. There's no there's no incentive for them to to protect their pitchers, so they just throw them out there for 140 pitches or 160 pitches. We used to hear these horror stories, and maybe uh, the major league manager who thinks. 
I believe my best chance for winning this game is to leave this guy in a fourth time through 110 pitches plus or whatever the situation is. And maybe they need to change the incentives for these managers that, okay, you know, you will, will fire you if you don't win a certain amount of games, but we're also going to fire you if you wear out our $5 million, $10 million arms. Yeah, maybe find some bonus plan and say you can get a, a, a hundred a hundred thousand dollar bonus if if our if our starting pitchers pitch under a certain amount. I mean, sometimes you will see that uh, teams will say, "I want a thousand innings out of my starting pitchers." I'm like, "Okay, that's if all five guys stay healthy, that's all five guys getting two hundred innings pitched." Do you really want your do you really want your fifth starter getting 200 innings? Uh, he's a fifth starter for a reason. Uh, you know, unless you're, you, know, you look at the Yankees rotation right now, and they've got a pretty deep five. But overall, some teams are lucky to have two pitchers that you want out there for even 160 innings. I mean, for me, I'd like to see everybody out there, you know, set that goal uh, more at 175 for everybody, and that way that gets us at 875 innings for the season, and then get better relievers. And a lot of teams are will try to get cheap on relievers. It's such a volatile commodity anyhow you have from one season to the next guys can be great i mean toronto jason grilly for the last few years has been a great reliever and this year he's been terrible i mean that all of a sudden these guys go from wow to ugh really quickly and it's just a matter of finding which guys will balance out uh, but keep those guys uh churning especially down in the farm system if you've got a guy that shows the the, the arm but is struggling with a third pitch or struggling with command Convert them to relief. Get them ready. Bring them up to the uh, to the major leagues uh, and get them some exposure. But uh, I, we've got to find some kind of happier medium on these guys. I, we're not going to see Don Drysdale anymore. Uh, we've got to find a little better way to man. Pitching's tough on the body to begin with, but we I, there still has to be a better way of getting um, better health out of these guys because the injury rate just seems to be really scary still. Indeed, uh, I think this is something that's going to be very important for real baseball, and I believe that we need to keep our eyes peeled for identifying organizations that figure this out, because those are going to be the organizations whose pitchers that we want to draft and want to keep uh, on board, because it doesn't do anybody any good when the pitcher goes on the DL, or when, as we talked about Marcus Stroman and Alex Cobb and others, doesn't do anybody any good when this guy stays in there and, and changes a, a win to a loss, or a win to a no decision, because he just should have been out of the game earlier. And before we go to thumbs up, thumbs down, Jason, I wanted to talk briefly about a, a tweet you put out on your Twitter handle at Jason Collette with two L's, two T's. And that was, you were talking about watching Alex Bregman and you tweeted that you are on board with Alex Bregman. What are you seeing with him? So that, you know, the comment uh, last weekend when Paul and I were doing, uh, you know, who to start this week, he asked me about Alex Bregman. And I had to say that, honestly, I have not his that bad so over the past few weeks so I can't make a full judgment on him just based on numbers so the numbers look good but last time I sat down and watched Alex Bregman play for a number of games uh, it was a lot of bad contact uh, I didn't see the ball jumping off his bat I saw him uh, expanding his zone doing things like that and so then when within playing Tampa Bay this week I've watched all these games and I see the ball jumping off his bat I really like the way his swing looks uh, you know, he had uh, he hit one all the way to the fence that Peter Borzo stole that should have been uh, a triple, maybe even a home run. It was right there at the top of the fence. Uh, and you see, and he hit, a, he hit a Crawford box home run, but it was still a home run. Uh, and But the swing looks a lot better right now. And I think it's a matter of you know, he's getting some extra playing time. They, they've got him playing his, his, 
his natural position right now, and things are working out for him. Uh, now, when that lineup gets full strength again, uh, it looks like George Springer's due back any day now. Correa is still a few weeks off. Um, we'll see what happens at that point uh, by mid-September. But I really like what I see from his swing uh, and his approach at the plate right now, and that's why I'm, I'm, I'm in. Uh, whereas last week when Paul was talking to me, I'm, I'm like, I'm just purely number scouting. I need to sit down and watch what, watch what I see because last time I, was, I walked away underwhelmed. Yeah, in June he had a 680-ish sort of uh, OPS in July 10-21, so that's a, a nice jump. Some of it's explained by BABIP, of course. Uh, there's always a little bit of luck in these big swings, but anytime you see a guy who manages through 23-24 games, nearly 100 at-bats, uh, 100 plate appearances anyway, and he, and he puts up a 10-21 OPS, I'm always a little bit more convinced that there's that that's in him as a kind of regular thing that that is uh, it raises his ceiling for me in a way and I think Alex Bregman's going to be a very interesting guy to grab next year so I hope you forget about that by the time the tout draft comes around <laughs> <laughs> you know one thing I forgot to one thing I wanted to mention uh, was sometimes you can look and see if these guys when we were talking earlier about the uh, when you start looking at guys to see if the performance is real and if you should stay in or get off. You know, one of the things I like to do with StatCast these days is go and, and pull a couple of reports uh, looking at expected weighted on base average minus uh, weighted on base average to see guys that are underperforming offensively based on the way they're the contact they're making or looking at the amount of, uh, of barrels that they're making. One of the things I did uh, in my collect calls column is I looked at back in June, I made some bold predictions, and one of the predictions I made was Evan Longoria is going to get better because you looked at you look at his numbers. I, can, I put them up there against guys like Jose Abreu, Joey Votto, Lindor, Blackman, and his numbers are like, why is he even in it? These numbers don't make sense. But then if you look at the barrel leading board, you know, the, the amount of hard contact in the ideal hitting uh, the launch angle and the, and the exit velocity, he was right there with those guys. But his numbers weren't there with those guys. Well, since, since that point, Longoria has been – playing some of the best baseball of his career here since June. Uh, you know, he's now that he's been an everyday player, he's tend to wear down a little bit, but right now he's playing very well offensively because he was starting to get some of that fortune and, and get the production that his contact said he should have been getting. And so that's one of the things I like to go do is look at that and go pull that XW uh, OBA minus weighted on beta average from the uh, from the StatCast leaderboard. Uh, I'll look over the last 30 days and I'll look for hitters that have a big gap or pitchers with a big gap and try to target those types of guys because that's that's really one of the benefits of StatCast is it allows us to to see the type of contact guys are making that may not be showing up um, in in the uh, in the line score. Yeah, it's a fantastic extension of what a lot of us have been doing over the years with with lesser stats or coarser stats like just contact percentage and uh, and those kinds of things and, and looking at the luck stats like uh, BABIP and so forth. And we say, well, this guy's expected batting average is whatever it is and his real batting average is whatever it is. And if he's above it, then we should be thinking about selling. If he's below it, we should be thinking about buying. But those are pretty, as I said, those are pretty coarse stats. And when we get down to where we're looking at exit velocities, we're looking at barrels, we're looking at at uh, trajectories, and even just line drives versus pop-ups and those kind of things, we're getting a much better fundamental understanding of what a guy should be doing based on those very core performance uh, metrics. And I think it... Uh, 
if you're going to be successful in fantasy baseball, I think especially as the information becomes more well presented online and more accessible, of course it's accessible if you know where to look, but it's still, you got to know your way around a spreadsheet, you got to know your way around database queries and so forth to get the full bang out of it. Sooner or later, somebody's going to figure out a really good way to present it. And at that point, uh, it's going to be like every other information advantage we all ha- we all have over the years. Eventually it gets furthered away and everybody knows it. Indeed. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Jason Collette. And Jason, as you know, we always ask our experts to talk about players who get the old thumbs up and thumbs down for the rest of the season. Uh, So let's start with thumbs up guys you think should interest our listeners as we wind down towards the end of 2017. Let's start in the American League. Who's a hitter that gets thumbs up from Jason Collette? You know, it's it's the improbable thing and the backstory about it. Uh, you know, so folks that have followed Tout Wars forever uh, will remember uh, 08, 09, when Ron Chandler dropped $19 on, um, oh, God, I'm forgetting the guy's name now, Nick Punto. He dropped $19 on Nick Punto because he needed speed, and it was the last speed guy, and he had $19 left, and he's like, okay, I'm going to do it. Well, I had a similar moment in my home AL League this year where I needed middle infield speed, and uh, the auction just played out really weird, and I'm sitting on like $19, and I have one guy left, and Whit Merrifield. So I just like, you know what, I'm not walking away from the table with any money, so I just said, Whit Merrifield, $19, everybody laughed. And um, he may end up earning that, the way he's played of late. I mean, his June was insane. You know, he hit 337, was on base about 38% of the time, scoring runs, stealing bases, hitting home runs. It's rather improbable because you watched Whit Merrifield last year. He looked like just one of these org guys that, okay, he's going to come up, slap it around, become a fan favorite because he runs around fast and that type of thing. Now he's a valuable player. And you just look at June, uh, July, rather. It's crazy what he's been able to do. And I think I want to sit down and look more into how has he converted himself from a guy that looked like a slappy to a guy that now I'm thinking I'm going to take, I might take him in 12-team mixed leagues next year type of thing. It, where's the real talent level? But it's, it's been impressive what he's been able to do this, this month uh, and overall in the season. 11 homers, uh, 17 stolen bases as we speak. Uh, batting average just short of 300. He's a $24 player by Baseball HQ's measure. Uh, indeed a profit at $19. Uh, who's a National League hitter you like f- uh, for the thumbs up? You know, Wilson Contreras, for me, has been every bit of what we thought he was going to be. I mean, we, when we compare it, if we just look at his teammate, he and, and Kyle Schwarber, a lot of people were all in on Schwarber. Uh, you know, we've many of us have been burned by going after that young catcher, seeing that year one, okay, this, you know, he's going to be awesome, and then he gets burned. But Contreras has been even better than he was last year. I mean, he had two more home runs yesterday. He's uh, 18 home runs on the season. 508 slug, 276 batting average, 347 on base. Uh, you know, it's it's working out well for him, and I've been very impressed with what he's been able to do in, in his sophomore season where a lot of guys in his shoes have taken that step back. He's taken it forward. And we talk about whether uh, a player is exceeding expectations, and really Wilson Contreras isn't. His uh, year-to-date value, $18 at Baseball HQ, we're projecting 19 the rest of the way. So whatever he's doing, he's full value for it. Uh, over to the pitcher's mound in the American League. Who's a pitcher that gets Jason Collette's thumbs up? Uh, for that guy, it's going to be the guy that I picked to win the Cy Young for the AL, and that was James Paxton. Uh, if he had not missed that bit of time for injury, it would have been very interesting to see how – 
Sale, Kluber, and Paxton would have gone up against one another in the final uh, vote for Cy Young right now. Um, I'd say it's Kluber's going to win that. Uh, but Paxton's been unbelievable here. Uh, last 30 days, 5-0. and He's won all five of the starts, 136 ERA. He's been just a pleasure to watch pitch, just coming and striking out. Bunches of guys not walking anybody. Um, it's, it's what we kind of saw towards the back half of last year, which is why I was so excited about him coming into this year. And, uh, it, again, he's just on a roll right now. James Paxton, a $24 player at Baseball HQ, projected for 23 the rest of the way. So, again, full value for the performance year to date. And uh, how about a National League pitcher that gets the thumbs up? You know, uh, Aaron Nola for me. I mean, right now, of late, the, the overall numbers in the season may not be there, but of late, just watching him pitch, you know, these two and two, 191 ERA over his last 30. But re- what really stood out to me uh, was when he took on the Astros the other day and just shut the lineup down. Uh, and that's really tough to do. Yes, I know it's a uh, it's a reduced lineup with no Springer, or no Correa, but to shut those guys out the way he did, uh, his curveball's looking so good. It's one of the few things that we've done uh, right in labors. We traded. Uh, Paul and I traded Ken Giles to Potthoser for Aaron Nola, and I think Nola's allowed two earned runs since we acquired him. Uh, and uh, so that's worked out really well for us uh, in that regard. But Nola is really taking a step forward um, here in the middle part of the, uh, of the season, and it's just been fun to watch pitch. He has indeed. Uh, Aaron Nola has been terrific the last 31 days. Uh, what, something like a 191 ERA, something like that. 109 whip. He's a terrific young pitcher. And of course, we were all pretty high on him coming into the year, and then he kind of disappointed. And a lot of people maybe jumped in when they should have on Aaron Nola earlier this year. And good for you if you did. Uh, Jason Collette's thumbs up players Whit Merrifield of Kansas City, Wilson Contreras of the Cubs, James Paxton of Seattle, Aaron Nola of Philadelphia. Let's move over to the thumbs down players, Jason, guys about whom you think listeners should be cautious for the rest of the year. And let's start with an American League hitter who gets your thumbs down. Uh, Matt Holiday gets my thumbs down, and this hurts because I thought he was going to be in for a good season in that in that heavy Yankees lineup. He should be able to fall into a lot of RBI opportunities, uh, and he is aging rapidly before our eyes <laughs> right now. I mean, here in the second half, he's he's a buck forty three hitter with a two oh eight slug. He just when he comes up, I have a lot of Yankee friends, and they just like you could hear the cur- the collective groan when Holiday. Plate. It's just really crazy to see how badly he is performing uh, in that lineup. And but he's going to keep getting chances because it's not like they have too many other guys they can pop in there. But he's just not doing anything right now, uh, and it's it's sad because that's one of the things he's been able to do is yeah, maybe the home runs weren't going to be there, but he could make the contact. All he's got to do is just put the ball in play to drive in these runs, uh, you know, hit the singles and doubles. But right now he's having trouble getting out of the infield. In the National League, how about a thumbs down hitter? Uh, that's got to go to Jed Jerko. Um, the jerk store looks like it's closing up. Uh, he has uh, really been struggling of late. The uh, buck seventy-two, and just not. I think he's had three home runs since the the middle of June. Whereas early on, it looked like he was going to pick up where he had left off. But uh, the numbers, he's hitting for better batting average, but the power has really come down. And, and we drafted him for power, not for batting average. And how about a, an American League pitcher? Thumbs down. I mentioned him earlier, and that's going to be Blake Snell. Uh, to me, it's you know, when you have imagine having ninety three to ninety six on your fastball, and and not 
being uh, not being wi- not being willing to use it. And for him, what's what's killing him? And just go watch any of his outings. Is he won't pitch inside? I mean, you have that kind of fastball, and you're only throwing it to the outer half of the plate. I mean, Joe Madden, uh, when I used to work down in, in Tampa Bay and, and go and do the pregame scrum and the postgame thing, one of the big things he liked to talk about was. You know, baseball's hard. You can't cover both parts of the plate. You can cover in, you can cover out, you can cover up or down, but you can't cover all, only your, your Tony Gwynn's uh, and Ted Williams types. They can do all that. But for the most part, hitters have to choose which half of the plate they're going to cover. But in Blake Snell's case, if he won't pitch inside, and all he's going to do is pitch to the outside with his fastball and then try to come inside with a breaking ball, or maybe a, every now and then with a fastball that misses his location and runs in, He's doing the hitters a favor. All they got to do is they're like, okay, fastball is going to the pitcher is going to be away for the most part. All I got to do is guess up or down, and that's what gets him into trouble because a lot of the times he when he's missing in the zone, he's missing out of the zone. So people are taking those pitches, and then they're fouling off the pitches on the outer half. And then when he makes a mistake inside, those are the ones that they're hitting. Um, and he hasn't changed his approach all year. And it's, it's as, a, as a fan, it's frustrating to watch. As an owner, it's frustrating to watch. And just as a fan of pitching. It's frustrating to watch a guy with his abilities underutilize them. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who gets the thumbs down? It's tough to uh, to jump on a Rockies pitcher, but Jeff Hoffman. Um, when you want, I mean, you go back to June and watch what he was able to do. The Chicago Cubs and a couple of outings that he had in June, uh, late May and early June, where the stuff would just look terrific, and then. Here over the last month, he's been anything but. He's walking everybody, giving up the home runs. Jeff Hoffman has got the stuff to be a successful fantasy pitcher. I, I firmly believe he could be a 15-team mixed league pitcher next year. Uh, right now, that's just not happening. He's just pitching terrible baseball right now, uh, and it's a shame because when he's on his game and the stuff is good, it's very good. Um, but uh, of late, it has been rather awful. Yeah, I think you need to strike out more guys than he strikes out to be successful, especially in Colorado. I know it's tough to get strikeouts in Colorado. They say, I don't know if it's been proved, that the thickness of the air affects the amount of break you get on pitches, the movement you get on pitches. All I know is that Jeff Hoffman this year, I thought he was going to do better than minus $1, which is where he's at, but according to Baseball HQ. So Jason Collette's thumbs down players, Matt Holliday of the Yankees, Jed Jorko of St. Louis, Blake Snell of Tampa, Jeff Hoffman of Colorado. Uh, Jason, tell us uh, where listeners can get more from Jason Collette. Sure. So um, there's the Collect Calls column at RotoWire that runs once a week. Uh, usually he's up by Monday uh, morning, depending on my work travel schedule. And then uh, on Saturdays, Paul Spore and I record the Sleeper in the Bust uh, weekend edition where we talk about two-start pitchers and different guys that are hot or cold and what you should do with them. And uh, then on Twitter, at Jason Collette, you mentioned earlier, there's two L's, there's two T's, but there's also that silent E at the end because um, the guy without the E is a independent musician in Canada, uh, and he sings, I don't, uh, and I'm sure he gives rather awful fantasy advice, so you may not want to ask him for that. All right, Jason, uh, thanks very much for doing this. Uh, it was on real short notice, and I do appreciate you taking the time. Got up real early in the morning and talked baseball. What else could be better than getting up early in the morning and talking about baseball, I guess? Thanks so much for helping me. Hey, no problem. Thank you. Jason Collette writes for Rotowire and appears at the Sleeper in the Bus podcast, as well as blogging at the Process Report. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. I would imagine a lot of guys up here talk about their fathers because there's something about a dad for a son that plays baseball. Um, 
you brought me to love this game of baseball, uh, to go out and every single day for us to try and get better. You used to say that you gave me my, your right arm throwing me batting practice all the time, uh, and you did. But more importantly, you taught me how to be a man. Showed me respect, how to have respect, uh, to walk through this life as a man. And, you know, that's something that I'm very proud of, and I try and use that with my kids, too. Um, you are just a wonderful father, and I'm so happy that you're here for this day for me. Uh, I know it means a lot to you, and we're in this together, my friend. My last teammate I want to talk about, obviously, is Craig Biggio. We've been known to be together. You always Craig Biggio and Bagwell, Biggio and Bagwell, Bagwell, Biggio, whatever you want to say. But now we're here, uh, we'll always be here in Houston, excuse me, in the Hall of Fame together. I can't thank you enough uh, for just giving me inspiration to how to play every single day and post and go out there and give everything you can. And Craig and I just wanted to win, and we wanted to win one way, and that was the right way. And I hope that's what we did. My earlier childhood memory in ball baseball, my entire life has been about baseball. When teacher asked us what we want to be when we grew up, my answer was always the same, play baseball. And I was able to play at the highest level for 21 years. And my dream has become a reality. Growing up in Puerto Rico, there was no greater joy to watching the game of the week. My favorite team was the Cincinnati Reds because the catcher was my hero, and the hero is here to, today with me, the great Johnny Bench. First time that I caught Nolan Ryan in 91, we sit down in, uh, in the coach's room, and the one thing that he told me was, kid, you don't have to do too much. And I say, okay. <laughs> he almost threw his eighth non-hitter later on when cruising along the Angels when Hall of Famer Dave Winfield, who's here today, single to lead off the eighth inning. After the game, the reporter asked me, what was the pitch that you threw? And I said to the reporter, Nolan, checked me off. Sorry, Nolan. <laughs> Jeff Bagwell and Yvonne Rodriguez on Sunday at the Hall of Fame, and congratulations once again from Baseball HQ Radio and the entire HQ team to those two Hall of Famers and Tim Raines, this year's player inductees, into the Baseball Hall of Fame. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries, not as many of them as usual. Coming up, we have my Master Notes column and leading off our weekend pitcher matchups report. Baseball HQ rates pitchers on a matchup scale centered on zero. Ratings of plus one or better are strong bets to start, and ratings of minus one or worse are strong bets for you to deliver onto your bench. Between the ones, we call those the wild card range, which sounds kind of like a location in a Louis Lemur Western. Hey, Sheriff, looks like the bandits took off into the wildcard range. But actually, they're just match-up toss-ups, and you'll have to consider your options based on your situation and risk appetite. 
With a look at weekend matchups, including Jose Barrios, Rich Hill, and other weekend pitchers, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Our marquee matchup features the only pitcher with a recommended start matchup rating this weekend, and he's a new kid in town. 23-year-old Minnesota Twins right-hander Jose Barrios has a matchup rating of 101, and he's at home Sunday to face the Texas Rangers. The Rangers' scheduled starter is right-hander Nicholas Martinez, who has a matchup rating of minus 193. That gives Barrios and the Twins a very favorable matchup rating differential of 294. The Twins took the biggest fall in the July 31 USA Today Power Rankings, dropping four slots to number 17. The Rangers are just one slot above them at number 16. Overall, Minnesota is three games under 500, and Texas is five games under 500. Against teams under 500, the Twins are eight games over 500, and the Rangers are one game over 500. At home, Minnesota is eight games under 500. On the road, Texas is seven games under 500. Versus right-handers, the Twins are one game over 500, and the Rangers are five games under 500. Maybe the two teams' power rankings should be switched because it looks like Minnesota has the edge over Texas when they're matched up head-to-head. Barrios had 14 starts in his rookie year last season and produced 58 innings of stay-away stats. In 15 starts this season, Barrios has put up 91 innings of respectable results, earning his owners $14 in fantasy value on a BPV of 92. Barrios has a whip of 115, a control rate of 2.7 walks per nine, and a dominance rate of 8.1 strikeouts per nine for a command ratio of three strikeouts per walk. Last season, Barrios had one PQS dominant effort and seven PQS disasters. This year, he has six PQS dominant outings and five PQS disasters. If you haven't yet jumped on the Barrios bandwagon, now would be a good time because Jose Barrios is this weekend's marquee matchup man. For our Saturday surprise, let's go back a day and back in time to 37-year-old lefty Rich Hill of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Hill has a negative wildcard matchup rating of minus 011 for his venture into New York's City Field. He'll face Mets right-hander Seth Lugo, who has a positive wildcard matchup rating of 055. But this matchup looks like another switcheroo. In nine outings, Lugo has two PQS doms and four PQS disasters. In 15 starts, Hill has four PQS doms and four PQS disasters. On August 1, Hill was named National League Pitcher of the Month for July when three of his five efforts were PQS dominant. During the 31 days of July, Hill threw 31 innings and struck out 40 while walking only five. His low matchup rating can be blamed on his slow start to the season. His BPVs in April and May were 13 and 12. For June and July, Hill brought his BPVs up to 69 and 188. He is now at 101 for the year. In 78 innings pitched overall, Hill has struck out 90 and authored a whip of 118. And in case you haven't heard, the Dodgers have the best record in the majors. They're number one in the July 31 USA Today Power Rankings, and the Mets are a season-low 23rd. LA allows fewer runs than any other team and has the largest run differential. Versus teams under 500, the Dodgers are an MLB best 30 games over 500. Against teams over 500, the Mets are 15 games under 500. On the road, LA is nine games over 500. At home, the Mets are three games under 500. Versus right-handed pitchers, the Dodgers are 28 games over 500. Against lefties, the Mets are one game over 500. Don't be surprised if Rich Hill racks up another PQS dominant start on Saturday. In other action, look for the Milwaukee Brewers to continue their tumble in Tampa Bay against the only team with both starters in the positive wildcard range. 
The Rays' Alex Cobb has an 039 on Saturday, and Chris Archer has an 064 on Sunday. Teams with both starters among the 21 recommended sit matchup ratings make good targets to stack against. So load your American League lineups with Boston Red Sox at home against the Chicago White Sox, Kansas City Royals at home versus the Seattle Mariners, and Minnesota Twins at home facing the Texas Rangers. In the National League, maximize your Miami Marlins at home against the Atlanta Braves. Check our site to get updated matchup information every morning. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick has his weekend pitcher matchup segment here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball. And this week, I want to talk about buying and holding. Many years ago, I was a much more active investor in the stock market than I am now. I know, I know, the stock market is not analogous to most fantasy baseball formats. The time horizons are usually longer, and share ownership is not exclusive. We can both own Boeing, we can't both own Mike Trout. Because I was still working and trying to build a retirement nest egg, I was willing to embrace more risk in seeking more growth. You might say I was like a guy building a roster for a fantasy keeper league or a dynasty league. To find growth, I had assigned 15% of my portfolio to growth stocks and accepted the higher risk involved. In those days, looking for high growth, high risk meant internet stocks. I put some money into a few of those, including a small company at around $24. I understood the company's relatively simple business plan and I believed in it. They were competing in a niche market, accepting smaller margins than the ridiculous markups of that market at regular retail. By the way, the new owners of the L.A. Dodgers, a few years later, did well by accepting lower margins than other teams, especially the Yankees and Red Sox, to build better teams because they made more money. That's the idea. Lower margins, higher volume. Anyway, I finally cashed in my shares after only about six months, well short of my usual, because I wanted to pocket a nice 70% gain. You see, my family was growing, so I was trying to reduce risk in my investments and also reduce the churn of buying and selling in my account. Instead, I became a buy-and-hold investor. Now, you probably know where this might be going. The dot-com collapse in about 2000 saw hundreds of tech high flyers go bust, but my former internet stock rebounded. The company kept growing beyond its original niche, which was selling books online, and expanded into selling... Well, everything online. Of course, you'll recognize that the company was Amazon. And had I just hung on, each $1,000 of my investment would be worth... Go on, guess. I'll tell you at the end. The moral of the story is something most honest stock market analysts and brokers, and yes, they do exist, will tell you. Don't try to time the market, especially using relatively short-run information. Just buy good stocks and hold on. All of this came to mind recently when I was looking at my tout AL team, which is languishing in the middle of the pack and suffering in the pitcher decimal categories of ERA and ratio. One problem is that I've been too active as an investor. I've been moving pitchers back and forth from reserve to active and back again, churning my pitching staff based on various short-term factors, including opponent strength that week, recent high pitch count games, whether the pitcher was coming off a good start, a bad start, whether he was in a two-start week, everything up to and including, well, not quite including, astrological signs. It just hasn't worked. The aim, of course, is that we want to have active pitchers who would do well and reserve those who shouldn't. But my own experience is that I've been just as likely, sometimes more likely, to miss out on good appearances and take the punishment from bad appearances. 
I was curious about this. I wanted to check the validity of various streaming factors I read about all the time online. I listed all the pictures with 20 plus starts so far this year. Then I let Excel randomly pick pictures from three tiers of perceived preseason auction value. From the $20 to $30 tier, the computer picked Jacob deGrom. In the $10 to $20 tier, Marcus Stroman. And in the $1 to $9 tier, J.C. Ramirez. The first factor was strength of opposition, easily the most commonly cited factor for making streaming decisions. You sit your pitchers against strong teams, right? So I divided all the teams into tiers based on Team OPS Plus. It's an OPS metric that's adjusted for league and park. The top tier was teams with OPS Plus of 100 or higher. Houston, Washington, the Dodgers, Tampa, Detroit, the Yankees, Cleveland, Miami, and Seattle. The bottom tier was teams with OPS Plus under 90. Toronto, Kansas City, Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, San Diego, and San Francisco. And the middle tier was teams with OPS Plus of 90 to 99, which was all the rest. Here's the thing. Sitting pitchers against Tier 1 strong opponents and pitching them against Tier 2 and 3 was counterproductive. DeGrom's ERA versus poor offenses in T3 was indeed a boon to fantasy team stats, but his production and skills versus Tier 1 teams were far better than against Tier 2. If we were broadcast booth ninnies, determined to create a narrative to explain these stats, we would probably say something like, oh, DeGrom is a real competitor. He gets amped up against those top teams. Stroman hasn't actually had any starts versus Tier 3 teams, one of the joys of pitching in the AL East when the only Tier 3 team in the division is the one you're pitching for. But his 250 ERA versus Tier 1 teams is actually a run and a quarter better than against Tier 2. I guess Stroman can amp it up as well. Ramirez, meanwhile, was best versus Tier 2. But if you started him versus Tier 3, which would be the normal thing to do, it was a disaster. He had an 11.25 ERA, a 1.47 whip. New narrative, please. Another widespread streaming play is to bench pitchers going after a previous start with a high pitch count. For high pitch count, I used any start in which a pitcher threw more than five pitchers above his overall median pitch count. This streaming tactic worked well with DeGrom, who had a 6.0163 line in his four post-high pitch count starts, compared with a 2.72 ERA-105 ratio in games not after high workload starts. DeGrom's poor performance carried into strikeouts, which were down two strikeouts per nine, his walks were up two walks per nine, and his command was down to 1.8 instead of 3.8 in games where he was coming off of non-high pitch count. It was a different story for Stroman and Ramirez, though. Stroman's whip in post-high pitch count starts was no different from others, but his ERA was actually a run and a half lower when he came off a big workload, and his control was a walk and a half better. Ramirez showed much the same pattern. The whips were similar, but his ERA was much lower in those post-high pitch count starts. But Ramirez's skills were noticeably worse in those latter games. His dominance was down 2.7, his control up 2.5, and his command fell all the way to an egregious 1.1 level. Finally, I checked some other tactics I've read about for streaming, and they all showed no patterns, for these three pitchers at least. Sit a guy after a bad outing, start a guy after a good outing, turn it around, start him when his astrological sign is rising in Cassiopeia with the moon ascendant, none of it seemed to matter. And for those who always start pitchers going twice in a week, 
you might as well keep doing it. Without getting into the details, skills for all three pitchers were almost exactly the same in two start weeks as they were in the season as a whole. So, at least you're going to get more strikeouts because they tend to pitch more innings. But the wins, they stayed random. Percentages in two start weeks were better for Ramirez, about the same for Stroman, and significantly worse for DeGrom on the wins front. Now remember, these are only three pitchers and only around 20 starts and barely 500 batters apiece. A small sample for each of them, in other words, but isn't streaming pitchers, especially good ones, making a play based on very small samples? You bench a guy after one high workload start? That's a small sample. BaseballHQ.com has run analysis showing that high pitch count starts do not predict poor follow-up performance. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Maybe there's more research work to be done here. Where's that Costco bill again? For right now, absent any proof to the contrary, I'm going to go with the Warren Buffett strategy. Buy good stocks and hold on to them. In other words, start good pitchers and start them all the time. Inherently, good pitchers will tend to pitch well, and they should be started every time unless we hear actual news of a sore arm, maybe a pitcher going on short rest, something like that. And meanwhile, poor pitchers, well, they'll pitch poorly. There will be some occasions when these truisms will not bear out, but it seems like a mug's game to try to time those occurrences based on external factors, which do seem pretty random to me and therefore unpredictable. Oh, that Amazon investment, I'm sure you're curious. As of this podcast, each $1,000 invested in those Amazon shares back when would be worth a cool $480,000 today. That's a 480-fold increase per $1,000. And I would be writing this on a Mediterranean beach, not in a Waterloo, Ontario basement. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Master Notes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Master Notes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 4th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 31 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Jason Collette from Rotowire, The Process Report, and The Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Jason is an excellent baseball analyst and a terrific guest here on the show. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson, and our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Master Notes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums, and remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, and please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. Congratulations again to Tim Raines, Jeff Bagwell, Ivan Rodriguez, and Adrian Beltre. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long.
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.